Everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, um, a Doof Media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward for all those returned to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and um, Scott, I have a very important announcement to make. We're done. Yeah, we're done. We're, we're quitting. We're not doing podcasts anymore. Yeah, we just got up this morning, and I was like, "Hey, Matt, you want to talk for two and a half hours about two chapters of this book?" And I was like, nah. So we said, fuck it. So, yeah. Um, thanks for tuning in, I guess. Yeah, it's been uh, real. All right, Scott, roll the outro. How, how long do we how long do we keep the joke up before we start doing the podcast? I, I don't know. I'm getting nervous. Let's just jump into it. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of sticky blood, trusting me, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we hit our first interlude of Arc 20 last, and surely that's a sign that the end is is nigh, or near. <laughs> I don't know. We're covering chapters 20.9 and 20.a. Victoria, while removing her blood-soaked costume, gets a visit from Tattletail, who needs to be convinced why Operation Genocide is actually a good thing. Vicky gives a, a pretty convincing argument, and Lisa repays her with a good old uh, magic heel and key to getting the plan done once again. Then we cut to Defiance's point of view as the one-armed wonder leads the final push to put Seamurg to sleep. Er. Defiant and Dragon discuss Victoria's plan and decide to go along with it. Operation I Choose You Genocide begins. Matt, what did you think about these two chapters? <laughs> I like how I laugh in inverse proportion to how funny those actually were. Um... <laughs> Uh, it's, it's great. I mean, I, the, the fine interlude really kind of just stood out as, as being super, super great. Um, I, I didn't know I needed a defiant interlude, um, but I apparently super did need a defiant interlude. And, uh, yeah. and of course the Victoria chapter was, was a definite break from what we've been doing for most of this arc. Um, really the distinguishing characteristic of it is that, um, there's no fighting. There's nothing for her to do. And so she's just forced to kind of sit with herself. And it's very interesting yeah. to watch how she reacts to that. Yeah. And, you know, continuing some of the themes we were talking about last week, there's this real sense of everything starting to starting to move together in a way, you know, like a lot of the the disparate themes and ideas and motifs of the story are really starting to come together. I think, you know, we have in this uh, chapter, the normal chapter, we have really uh, an important moment in the arc of Lisa, uh, uh, an ending moment, possibly in the arc of Lisa. And then we ha get this defiant interlude, which really serves to tie up his two book long story as well. Um, and it really feels like we're going through these characters and we're we, I said this a bunch last week, and it, it really feels true to me that we're like reaching the 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 finale, the closure of the arc for some of these characters. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, 
and yeah, let, let's let's head that way. So so before we start, um, March's Madness 2020, we're at the final four, Scott. Yeah, we got uh, four contestants left. This is the semifinal round, and it's going on right now. And as always, we are going to talk about the winners of last week's matchups and then uh, make our picks for the final four at the end of this show. Yeah, can't wait to do that. Um, I mean, I sort of am also apprehensive about doing that because um, I haven't thought about who I'm going to vote for. And I'm hey, sure it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard. It's uh-huh. real hard. Yeah, I mean, it, it get, I guess that's kind of the point is it gets harder and harder. So, yeah. All right. Moving on to chapter 20.9. Let's do it. Victoria's Tinker Tech eye powers down and she wonders if that's it, if that's the end of the world. And overall, this chapter really works to soak us in this deep dread. The past chapters have been so fast paced and there's always been something for Victoria to do. But now she is forced to just disengage and tend to her injuries. And she and and we, the reader, are finally able to really feel the horror of this situation, of this moment. Yeah, and and I think Wildbo, like even from the very beginning, plays up the this the the tone of the scene, like with with the sounds, right? Like we get at the very beginning the beeping and the hissing of machines, the the screams and grunts and cries of the injured people, um, and really setting this tone of of just like this idea of helplessness. And of course, we're in a hospital here, or rather like a, a makeshift triage area type thing. Um, and hospitals have been, for our protagonist, a place of deep, deep discomfort throughout the entirety of the story. And here, at one of the last final turns of it, she's stuck in a hospital with nothing to do, um, no problems to solve. Like, she can't rush out and fight something because there's nothing that she can fight anymore. Um And I think it's interesting that like she's focused on that concept and we don't see a lot of her like freaking out because she's in a hospital, um, which is something she definitely did earlier in the book. And yes, she's got bigger things to worry about right now, but that's never stopped those intrusive thoughts from invading her mind in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it does sort of suggest that maybe that's that particular fear has loosened its hold on her a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um. But I think it, it's interesting to me because, you know, this this idea of the world ending and, and all of that has been percolating through this story um, for a while. But this might be the first time that I've really viscerally, viscerally felt in my gut, like, the, the actual dread of, like, oh, God, like, what would it be like to be in this situation? And I think that's because Victoria, our point of view character, has been successfully managing to not really think about that too much like she's she's always trying to orient around an objective pursue the objective tenaciously if that fails go to the next objective never really giving herself and thus us because we're sort of empathically in her head a chance to feel the horror of it and that's why now that she slows down i'm like oh jesus this is this is dark yeah there's something deeply and darkly ironic about the fact that She's sitting here waiting for medical aid, uh, feeling time tick away as the world is about to come to an end. Right. Like, yeah, it's 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 you're right. You're absolutely right. This really plays up the dread of that. And I think you're right. The reason why we haven't felt it is because exactly exactly that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she just sits here and ruminates on the situation for like a few minutes. I think 10 minutes, she says, waiting to get medical attention and eventually like she just kind of exists in the hospital room. She's not really thinking 
about the situation anymore. She's just kind of thinking about how she'll interact with the nurses when they walk up to her. And, um, you know, it's worth pointing out in this scene that she's just horribly, horribly injured. She's lost a huge <laughs> amount of blood. Um, she's so re- she's so low on like mental and physical resources that for the first time in the story, she thinks to herself she just wants to minimize stress on as many levels as possible. Yeah, yeah. I love this. I love this so much. I mean, Victoria has always required this real sense of control, right? She needs to feel in control of the situation. She needs to feel in control of her life and in control of the objectives. And this is this situation has now left her control, right? Um, she sits here. She doesn't have a plan, as you said. She doesn't have an option. There's not the next thing to do. There's not a backup plan that she has. The, the plan that she had is ruined. It's gone. And there's nothing she can do but sit there and wait. And so what she does is is just latch on to the little thing she can control, which is I can control how I interact with this doctor. I can control the things that I say to minimize my stress, minimize their stress. I can control these elements and I'm going to reach and grab onto anything that I have that I can exert any bit of control over. Mm -hmm. I really like it. Um, Yeah. I, I love the moment where she sees Marquis here as well. And, and just the idea that Amy is somewhere in the building, possibly nearby, which Tattletale later confirms for us. And that threatens to just upend every bit of focus she has, just that idea. because, And it's not specifically because of the same reasons it was at the beginning of the story. We're like, oh my God, Amy, thinking about Amy sends me spiraling. It's more, I think, more focused specifically to, I don't know if I, I hurt her or not if mm-hmm. she's in here in the hospital because of me yeah I, I think that might be right i mean in any case she does sort of she does note that it bothers her but mm-hmm. she does not really dwell on it it's it's very transient sure, sure. or it seems yeah. to be um yeah so uh yeah the a nurse comes and gets her brings her back um i want to talk about her interaction with this doctor for a minute because sure. it's interesting because he kind of seems useless at first, <laughs> but then you have to remember that he's probably also just had the worst day of his life as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I wonder like how much they've communicated. I think everyone like feels like the world is ending at this point. And, and so the deep irony of Victoria sitting here to get uh, medical attention is also probably not lost by this doctor who's sitting here, like trying to triage people knowing that the world's going to end. And like the the uselessness of that feeling. But I love the interaction here starts with I've seen you on television, right? That's the first line the doctor has for Victoria. And her response is like an exhausted deadpan. Uh oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, it, I think you're right that it is clear that, that, that both Dr. Close and this nurse whose name I'm blanking on are are kind of overwhelmed with this. And I think the cool thing is with the nurse, we get this hint that she's from another dimension and maybe is not super experienced with parahumans mm-hmm. like as she's leading victoria to this doctor she keeps like looking back and marveling at the fact that she's flying um mm-hmm. it's like it's like it's not something that's just another day on the job to her that this is like they are desperate um they are desperate to get anyone who will help with anything and she, and so they're just pulling in people from wherever they can and a lot of people don't have experience with with parahumans and so like not only are they overwhelmed and exhausted and kind of defeated just like Victoria is, but this is just, this is just very new to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that helps explain their, their behavior a lot because like yeah. 
Victoria is really rambly here, as she says, but he's kind of simply falling into patterns, you know, like you get so overwhelmed and you just fall into your patterns or he's asking questions in the order that he always asks the questions. And even though Victoria has already given him an answer to one, he just asks it anyway out of habit or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's that's the thing is I think she's also she's rambly and she's also very short on patience. Mm-hmm. And so um, everything that he's saying is, is, is rubbing her the wrong way. Like, yeah. like she, she's, which I, I can empathize. Like when you're in a lot of pain, um, it's very easy to, to be short with people just in general. Yeah. And, uh, and especially like e- even healthcare providers who are trying to help you. If you're like, you know, e- it's easy to blame them and be like, it's your fault that I'm hurting. Um, and I think maybe there's a little bit of that here because, and, and again, like him and, and I think her name is Leah or something like that. Um, but anyway, like, like think about the, the, the order of events that must have happened to lead them to being in this room of the cauldron base, (laughs) like having evacuated Gimel, having evacuated somewhere else prior to that and just being like, all right, fuck what now? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously Victoria has been having quite a day. Um, but in a certain sense, this is her like. This is her life's work. She does this on purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. For them, they're just like trying to hold it together, I think. And uh, yeah, and I, I think we see that when she sh- when he sees her collarbone injury for the first time, because mm-hmm. she's just like collarbone broken mm-hmm. ribs, pretty fucked up. And then he actually sees the injury for the first time. And he's just like, oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like imagine what it looks like, and especially to a person who may or may not have experience with parahuman type injuries with like the 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 devastation to their body that that this whole thing does um that's got to be so overwhelming right yeah i mean it because it's like cut right yeah it's horrifying well it like so it like it it got a little bit cut by the laser mm-hmm. and then she fell down hard and snapped the rest of it and like she's put some coagulate in there but there's still ble- <laughs> like it's got to look just like yeah. a fucking mess yeah i I bet some of the bone is exposed that's that's the compound yeah yeah the the the, the bone sticking out is what i'm imagining for sure (laughs) i mean speaking of like the the blood like so so victoria uses the wretch to peel her clothes off of her she's kind of uses the wretch to to do everything for the rest Mm -hmm. of this chapter yeah um and and of course we have to talk about these moments throughout this chapter where the force field is doing all these extra things to kind of gently care for her that she's not even really you know doing on purpose yeah yeah it's like i don't like there's always going to be a part of me that still feels unsettled by that um and, and i think i think wild bow knows that i think anything when you see this this alien force field thing like brushing back victoria's hair and like like later in the chapter, I think when she's talking to Tattletail, the wretch is like rubbing her hands through Victoria's hair, right. just like like massaging her head a little bit. And she says, like, I can't remember telling it to do that. And uh-huh. it's like, oh, gosh, um, uh-huh. I, I don't know if I'm still on the this this relationship between them is actually sinister train. I just think it is off putting whenever you see things like this. And Victoria is almost entirely unaware of how off putting it would be like the, the moment in this part where she like she's out of your way now she moves the force field out of the way of the nurse and she's like she secret and then holds up like a has the wretch hold up like a piece of cotton that looks like a finger to her lips and it's just like 
That's so creepy, yeah, uh, Victoria. Yeah. Do you know how creepy that is? You're freaking <laughs> this girl out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's yeah. funny because all of the like unintentional wretch use reminds me a bit of how Taylor's bugs would sort of be a projection of her emotional state. Um, mm-hmm, a, a mm-hmm. bit, a bit different because it's more like, um, it's more like that scene in the Wolf of Wall Street where he he thinks that he has like, like successfully driven somewhere and then he turns <laughs> around and the car is all smashed up. Like mm-hmm. it's just like an indicator of like she's not doing as well as she thinks she is internally because yeah. she's losing control of the wretch in a way where it's just kind of doing whatever it feels like. Yeah, like I love the moment where like she's her arms are being held up by the wretch, right? Like she's not even, she's so exhausted. She can't even like hold her arms up in the air to get the costume off of her so that she's just holding her arms out and the wretch has just lifted her arms and it's leaving handprint indentions on her skin because it's pressure on the skin. that's invisible. So all we can see is the pressure in the shape of a hand. Like what must this look like to people? Like they don't uh-huh. know what this is. I mean, later they're just like, uh, telepathy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's like, yeah, get close enough. Close, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, Don't have the but, energy for that right now. Yeah. But I, I want to talk for a sec about the blood, though, because this process of removing her costume is painful and the wretch is being as gentle as possible with it. But but it's painful because Victoria has bled so much. that The sticky, clotting blood has basically glued her costume to her skin. Uh-huh. And so every moment, every movement, every moment combined with her fractures and her broken ribs and everything hurts her because you you can't just remove it you have to like kind of rip it off Uh um and i love that i like just like i love that as a as a visual scene but also just like metaphorically victoria's blood has bound her cape identity to herself has glued her cape identity to herself what a what a perfect symbol of the idea of life and cape life being inextricably bound together that that her lifeblood leaking out of herself literally glues her costume to her yeah or, or you could you could say a twist on that like her costume is so saturated with blood that it's like a second skin and, mm-hmm. and peeling it off is like peeling off a, a, a part of her yeah um, yeah i like that too yeah yeah it's, that's gross i love it i think it's especially in a series of chapters where capes are going to be asked to give their lives you know i think that that marrying of those images together is especially poignant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so stuff like this is great because it really <laughs> illustrates how Vicky is just so goddamn worn out that her thoughts are just rambling and sort of like allowing her to actually be fully present in the moment, much as if you know, like, like as much as it might suck, um, she's, she's actually present. She's thinking to herself. Sure. If nothing else, I appreciated being in this hospital room because it was distracting me. I could focus on on the little things like keeping the rest of my blood in, not passing out, how to articulate the damage to my ribs, and how to gently remove articles of clothing using alien engines of chaos and conflict. <laughs> and, I, and I love that as like, first of all, it, it's a bit more uh, uh, r- rambly and, and poetical than Victoria would normally phrase something, I think. Um, yeah. But also... Um, it is just this very, like, I don't know, every time you go to the doctor, you want to kind of be on your best behavior. Sure. <laughs> you know sure. what I mean? Like, like, like you, you can't, it's, it's hard to think about other things than the reason you're in the doctor's office, um, just in general. Yeah. yeah. And, and so like, it's, it's, it's giving her this break. Actually, this is the closest thing to a vacation Victoria has had in the entire story. Sure. Sure. Um, but it's interesting because that is followed up relatively quickly by her, her thinking, I would have forgone any fixes at all. Let these wounds stay open. If only someone from somewhere else in the facility would walk in and say there was a plan. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is I think you're absolutely right that this is like one of the first breaks she's given herself in the story. And it is only because there is literally nothing else she can do. Mm -hmm. Right. Like she's she's not granting herself out of this uh, this break out of like genuine concern for her own well-being and like this new found like feeling of self-care. That's not where this is coming from. It's just there's nothing else to do right now. There's right. nothing else she can do. And and she's saying that right here. If you give me something to do, I would be gone. I would leave right away. Mm. You give me an option, you give me something I could work on, something I could help doing, a plan, something I'm gone. And that's basically what happens, right? Tattletail shows up. She's not she's not been treated at all. She's just removed her clothing. Tattletail shows up, gives her an option. She throws her costume back on and leaves, and it's only after that point that she gets she gets healed. Um yep. so she, like if if there was not a, a magical cape healing powers that show up at this moment, she would have just took off mm -hmm. with all the same injuries she already had. Maybe slightly cleaned a little bit. Is is it? Yeah, uh, I mean, great point. Exactly. I mean, because that's exactly what happens, right? She she, yeah, she desperately yeah. wants someone to walk in with a plan, and someone walks in with a plan, and she's mm -hmm. like, "Oh, okay. Um, vacation over. That was nice. Uh, relaxing. Okay. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I like this moment where they ask the doctor asks her what name she wants to use. Um. I was just thinking, would you rather use your real name? You don't wear a mask. And her response is Victoria, Miss Dallin and Terry's whatever you want to call me. I don't know. That just feels important, right? Like this. So much of this book has been about Victoria's identity and who she wants to be. You know, from the very beginning, the warrior monk, the scholar, the wretch, Victoria Dallin, glory girl, like all these disparate facets of herself and the the ability to you know think holistically and i think that's a reflection of that it's like I, I i am all of these things i don't care what you call me yeah now that makes me really want to go back this this will be a this will be un, un, not easy to do but i want to go back and and try to find every time someone has asked her her name and seen how she responded to them because i think it's changed and i think this is kind of an evolution of that of just being like i don't, I don't care yeah, I mean, yeah. either an evolution or just she's literally so tired that she's like, I just don't give a fuck. Just yeah, it, I, it could be know. that, but that's less fun. It is less fun. <laughs> um, yeah. So I really like this moment though, where the doctor basically is like, "Hey, Victoria, you're you're out of blood. <laughs> you need more of that good, good blood stuff." And we get reminded that in the world of parahumans, blood transfusions fuck with powers temporarily. Um, and Victoria is basically given a choice here: accept the blood. And you'll be done for the rest of the book. Like you won't have your powers. Um, and, and the situation with the fragile one that you've worked so hard to gain might be ruined forever. But you might, you know, live um, for 10 minutes or so. <laughs> and I think it's interesting because like we don't actually get to see Victoria make this choice. Like right when she's like wrestling with the the idea of accepting this choice is when Tattletail walks into the scene and and hands our character uh, her her plan. Um, so we don't actually get to see her really like sit with this choice for very long. But I still love that it exists that in a brief moment there's like, OK, you need blood. Here's what we got to do. Get blood. And like you see the hesitation on her. She's she's lost so much blood. She's covered in it. It's caked. It's pasted to her body to the point where removing like she even says later that like, oh, yeah, her her pants and her underwear. That's totally stuck to like mm -hmm. that's how much blood there was. So she's got to be running on empty in the old blood department. And still, even in that moment, it's like I, I, I can't give it up. I can't yeah. give it up that 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 loses control and I can't do it. Yeah, right. Because there's there's 
a, a sliver of a chance that she might be able to do something, even though she has right. no idea what it is. Like, there's no plan. Yeah. <laughs> there's just there's no plan. Yeah. Can't can't let go of the steering wheel because right. something. Right. Yep. Yep. So, like you said, Tattletail shows up to check on her. Uh, Victoria's very cranky. Obviously, uh, it, it's uh, it's not this. It's not the nicest that Victoria's ever been to Tattletale. No. But but this is the softest and most sisterly we've ever seen Tattletale being to her. I agree. Yeah. And basically, this whole scene is completely heartbreaking for many reasons. But first of all, because Lisa is here because she's worried about Victoria, mm-hmm. uh, especially after hearing about her plan. So basically, Scott, the situation is that Tattletale doesn't really understand why everybody isn't freaking out like why <laughs> why rain and sveta of all people are on board with this plan yeah she knows them she knows their deal and she she can't square it and i mean metatextually tattletale reads ward um so tattletale <laughs> stands in for you know people like us who the reader yeah we we're not really like, like we're having a hard time getting our head around this plan and why it's coming from victoria yeah yeah totally. and so is she yeah, and uh, Matt, I, like the rest of this chapter is this conversation. Um, it goes on for the entire rest of this chapter, and I think it's one of the best conversations in this entire book. And I think this shows, like, you. I think someone in our Discord was doing this the other day, but they were like counting up the usage of characters' names in both across both books, and uh, Lisa was one of the highest, of course, because she's in both novels rather extensively. And it's like, why? I mean. Obviously, Wild Bill likes this character. He enjoys writing her. That's why she keeps appearing. But she also is just super narratively useful at all times, right? Just like if if you're trying to tell this complex story with all this stuff going on, having a character like Tattletale, having your exposition fairy character be present many times throughout the story is it's not like a cheat code, but it's like it's something you can lean on to help with things. And I think Tattletale being the one that comes in here and helps really square and helps us the reader understand the full scope of the situation i think is perfect and because this is a well-written book it is narratively satisfying as well it is not just we needed tattletale to do her expositiony thing again um it is also this moment for lisa this moment uh, of closure and this moment of of growth i think and understanding and and admitting things to herself about herself um that i think is just really really powerful yeah i think that the the greatest thing about her as a character is that it's not her power it's who she is in combination with her power it's who she is and that driving her to use her power the way she uses it because yeah i mean she certainly is a mechanism by which we are told information that would otherwise be somewhat laborious for us to get or mm-hmm. or we're given certainty about things where otherwise there would be a, a question mark above that thing yeah but yeah. fundamentally what what makes her a fantastic storytelling element is that she's driven to use her power um in these particular ways to to secure and protect the people she cares about and you know that's what makes it dramatic and and continuously uh one of my favorite parts of the story honestly yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I love her her black and white paradigm here, right? Like this idea of this is their relationship. I, I am black. You are white. I come up with the brutal plan. You tell me that's too far and back off from it. And that really has been what their plan, their back and forth has been for most of the book. Um, that that like Victoria is always there to put a check on on Tattletale in some ways. Um, and 
I think the the way Lisa frames this, that's something that she appreciates. That's that's her kind of admitting that she likes that aspect of the relationship. And the problem she's having right now is it seems like we've reversed this. Uh-huh. <laughs> it seems like like this line, you're making me look too good comparatively because you're this plan you've come up with. I don't understand it. Ma- help me understand it. Help me explain to me why. And we don't understand why this is happening at first. And we learn a little bit later that it's because uh, Tattletale using her power most likely has a solution to make this plan happen still. And she doesn't want to give it up until she understands the plan and, and not just what the plan is, but why Victoria yeah, right. It's it's one of these situations, one of the rare situations where Tattletale can't just look at the situation and be like, oh, yes, this is why. I mean, I, I don't know if it's because her power is not giving her the answer that she needs or maybe she's not using her power because she's exhausted. Um, maybe she's just afraid to trust her power in this instance. Maybe she wants to hear it not from her power, but from Victoria. Yeah, or, or she she wants... I think she just doesn't want it to be true fundamentally. Well, Like yeah. she wants to have this conversation and have Victoria reveal that that her reasoning is flawed and tattletale can walk away from the situation i mean basically this is what victoria accuses her of correctly i think yeah yeah i agree yeah um yeah so um victoria does tell us that there's more to it it, that you know the plan is more complicated than just just what lisa is saying that there are plans for after there's steps there's stages there's dreaming it takes a long time but ultimately in the end she verifies that the plan is basically mass death for as many capes as possible like that's mm-hmm. it's hard to get your head around that like that's that that's there no matter what other steps there are right yeah definitely but i think victoria reveals arguably one of the most important pieces of that which is that it's going to be a choice that we are not going to sit here and say and release uh, an agent that kills all capes it requires a handshake uh, both metaphorically and, and as we see in the next chapter, literally, um, as two characters shake hands to transfer the virus, but that people are going to have to pick. And this was hinted at last chapter when we talked about where Chris said, your plan requires you to trust people, to have faith in people. I don't. So I, I can't I can't do that. Um, and we didn't understand what that meant at the time. Um, and this really brings it to bear here. Uh, you get to decide. Everyone gets told the full scope of the information and gets to make the decision if they want to die or not. They all get to make their own choice. Um, and that's it's a pretty important wrinkle on the whole thing, right? And and before we move on and talk about that that idea generally, why why do you think Victoria hid this from us, the reader, for so long? Or or at least in her internal narrative did not acknowledge that this all-important part of the plan, which is that I'm going to give people a choice. I mean, I think ultimately she wanted to avoid thinking about this horrible path that they were committed to because yeah, I mean, for like, if you just try to get into her head as, as fully as possible, um, she's dead no matter what. Yeah. Like she's not gonna, if the world ends, she's dead. If her plan succeeds, she's dead. Because she's always going to be one of the ones that does it. She's always going to be. 100%. Exactly. And so there's no, she's not thinking about that. She's thinking about how to make that happen, but not not dwelling on it. And I think one of the reasons why she's thrown herself into everything so, um, you know, suicidally and, and accrued all these injuries in this chapter is that that's been her mindset is like, well, 
doesn't oh i broke my collarbone okay well i mean i'm not it's not <laughs> like i'm going to take it with me I'm not sure. going to have this collarbone for much longer so um i mean at least i got some use out of it you know like ultimately it's actually fairly pragmatic and logical um if, if you you know if we, if we take off our worrying about the protagonist glasses which we wear um <laughs> which have been affixed to our faces for several years now uh it, it just kind of makes sense actually yeah and i mean i think part of this is is connected to victoria's propensity to punish herself i think she came up with this plan and i think she kind of hates herself for it that's too strong of a word i don't think she hates herself for it i think she hates that they have to be here and she, she's kind of painting it in the worst light possible because she hates it too she hates that it has to be done and so like instead of painting it as like i'm going to offer the choice of heroic sacrifice to the capes she says genocide um like she's painting it in the worst possible light because part of her hates that the idea occurred to her well it's almost situations like that like she wants people to push back right like she right. wishes someone would just tell her no on some level i mean i mm-hmm. i think i think that she thinks this is the only way but also she wants someone to come along and say no victoria you didn't think of this the wardens have this great idea that, you, that you're yeah. not that you haven't been privy to that's that hasn't happened doesn't happen um yeah and one by one every contingency plan gets removed that's one of the things one of the things lisa brings to this conversation is here's what they're doing uh they're trying to bait the sleeper um they're trying to uh they're trying to you know use saint to take to do something with the machine army and while those plans might work and we see they do kind of work in the next chapter or, or at least we get the idea that they could be successful. They don't really solve the problem, right? Like they're not, they're not solutions to the problem. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're, those, oh, th- those seem like solutions to the, um, um, the Seamurg problem and the machine army problem. Right. Yeah. But, but not, it, not all that is moot if they're going to the crack Seamurg open the, all the earths. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Moving on to the, hero- the idea of heroic sacrifice in general, Victoria compares this, when she's making her initial arguments to Lisa, she compares this to fighting an endbringer that every time you go fight an endbringer, you're making a calculated risk that you're going to die. Um, that's just the way it is. That's just every time you do anything as a Cape, you are making a calculated risk that you might die. But, and, and she's like, well, and here the risks are just higher. Now we've got forces worse and stronger than a single endbringer lined up. It requires us to commit more with a higher proportion of death. And Lisa's response is 100%. <laughs> and, and that's true, right? And I think the 100% changes things a little bit. This isn't doing an action knowing you might die. It's not running into a burning building or walking onto a battlefield against an Endbringer. Those are calculated risks. You're hoping you don't die, but you're acknowledging that you might. Here, the action is death. Doing the thing, walking mm-hmm. onto the battlefield is dying. And that's a definitely a different calculus, right? And 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 I think that's the that's the part that Lisa has a real real problem with. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I I think you're right. It, it's fun. It's interesting because I had the same problem. Like it, it pushes a certain button for me that volunteering to fight an inbringer doesn't push. And mm-hmm. what's interesting is like if you just dig down to the like math of it, it's kind of no different. Like, like mathematically, <laughs> it's no different. It just feels very different. And this is one of those yeah. situations where 
worm has has kicked me in the head enough times that I that I definitely don't like live my life by utilitarianism or consequentialist like like crunching numbers anymore. But this is one of those situations where you're like, well, d- I mean, it does lend itself to that sort of analysis, actually. Right. Yeah, it does. I mean, this is the utilitarian choice, like by definition. Yeah. Um, that uh, the the choice here is that a smaller segment. Um, of the population, uh, save risk or sacrificing their lives to save everyone. Yeah. That, but I, I, the difference here between the utilitarian choice in worm and the utilitarian choice here now is choice mm-hmm. is agency that choosing to do this. This is what Cauldron didn't really do. This is what Taylor didn't really do. And time and time again, when it came to the fate of the world, certain people took unilateral action, stripped people of their agency, and carried out a plan. And I really think if you look back at this whole book, the idea of agency, the idea of control, the idea of self-determination and choice is so much of what, what is going on here. Look at all the bad guys. We talked about this in the past, and I just didn't get to put it together till we saw Victoria's argument here. Like Amy, Goddess, Chris, Cradle, like Cauldron, the Seamurg, all of these villains, all of these villains have the ability to remove agency from people. They take that away from them. And and I so here the solution is we we can't do this plan without giving people a choice. Um, and I, I do think that makes all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like another thing about all those characters you just listed is the ones, many of them have issues with agency being taken from them, like Chris sure. and like uh, like Cradle. Yeah, um, yeah. Because yeah. I think you're right, because what this is, and when you look back on it, what this whole thing is, is a vicious cycle that we thought we got out of, but we never did. Um, like, look at the original problem. The OG problem in the Worm universe is... The agents, the shards, the entities looking at entropy and saying, shit, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. We got to solve that problem. How do we do it? How do we try to solve this problem? Do we travel the stars, encounter other worlds, contacting the people on those worlds, putting uh, putting a universes uh, full of brains together to solve a problem? No, we force that. By stripping people of their agency, by sticking an alien in a person's head, using trauma at, at, to force them into conflict and to study them. It is ripping agency from people on the most fundamental level. And the human beings in the story have just repeated that cycle again and again and again. When there's a problem, solve it unilaterally and then justify it again and again and again. Taylor never could believe that it was possible for the world to come together on her own. She tried so hard and I don't want to take anything away from her. She tried so hard, but when she saw that it wasn't working, that it wasn't enough, she forced the issue. She became Kepri and she forced the issue and she ripped agency from people. Yeah. I now, mean, he, yeah, it was almost literally the same thing the shards do. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah, right, right. So now here at the end of this book, maybe we're finally ready to break that cycle. Here is the problem. Here is my solution, but I cannot make you do it. You have to choose. And I think that is that is why this is different from Cauldron. That is why this is different from every other choice. And the choice is still a bad one, right? It still sucks. And I think that's one of the things that Lisa does a really good job of reminding us in this argument is that that this isn't noble. This isn't like beautiful. It's not poetic. It's, it's just an end and it just sucks. But 
the difference is people get to choose it. And like, so when you think about that, when you frame it like that, I understand why Sveta got on board with this plan because her thing yeah. was that these people made a choice for her. They stole her agency. They did this thing to her here. She gets to make her own choice. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you've really nailed it. Actually. I, I, it, that's, that's so perfect and it comes together so well that I, I really think that everything you just said is pretty perfect. All I can really do, I mean, to, to, to add anything to it is to, is to mention the anti parahumans and how one of their arguments had, had always been like, yeah, I mean, they fought Scion to save us, but basically they were saving themselves. Like they, the, 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 the parahumans, like we don't owe them anything for fighting Scion. They were just, they were just killing the thing that was going to kill them. Right. Right. Well, in this situation, that excuse doesn't work anymore. It's just, it's yeah. just an interesting little I mean, I don't, it's not like Victoria's thinking about this. It's not like she's thinking like, yeah, I'm going to stick it to those anti-parahumans. <laughs> but, but it does interestingly kind of play into that dynamic where it's like the capes are now literally going to sacrifice themselves just to save you, not to save themselves, just mm-hmm. to save you. Yeah. And in, in many cases, not to save people they care about. Cause like Tattletale says, you know, cape community generally is pretty insular. Mm-hmm. You are mostly friends with or family with or hang out with other capes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this is, this is more selfless than just about anything anyone will have ever done. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really love that framing. That's, I, I think I was part of the way there, maybe less than half of the way there, but you kind of putting all those pieces together really made it work for me. Um, yeah. And I, I still like, I, I want to say here, and I think we're going to talk about what we think is going to happen to these folks at the end of the last chapter, which I spoilers, I, I don't think everyone's just going to die. Like, I don't, I don't actually think that's, what's going to happen, but, um, and I, and I'm still not like a hundred percent comfortable with the idea of the, what the book is saying is heroic sacrifice is unquestionably a good thing. I, I don't know if a hundred percent comfortable with that. I, I do think the idea of choice is is key to that, though, because like, I don't know, like we were listening to Elliot and Ruben talk about Deep Impact, not their podcast, but the <laughs> movie they did an April Fool's deep, thing. Deep Im- Impact. Deep Impact. Which it's funny. Deep in Deep Impact. Uh huh. I can't even hear the difference between those anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in that movie, I, I was thinking about this as I worked on the script today. In that movie, a, a, a team of characters in a shuttle basically make the choice to sacrifice themselves to blow up the asteroid and save the world. Right. That is. And, and so like, huh? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a comment. It's a comment. It's, it's very important. Um, like I, I do think we glamorize that a lot. Right. I do think, I do think we do. We glamorize the person willing to, to, to give their life for the greater good. That is unquestionably what we do a lot, but, like, why do we glamorize it? And well, because it's a, a selfless act. You don't benefit from it. Like, it is not anything that you directly benefit from. Yeah, it's it's the sort of ultimate form of being pro-social, putting your community and your loved ones first. Because right, right. every other situation, pretty much, you can say like, yeah, well, ultimately, you know, you're doing it so it's the only situation where you really can't impute any selfish motives onto it. Right. And so that, that makes it very pure and very um, just, it's a unique sort of situation. It's also 
it's also just super dramatic. Like, I mean, sure. just to be sl- slightly meta, like, like storytelling wise, there are a few things that are more dramatic than a properly executed self-sacrifice where mm-hmm. you actually um, walk through the character's feelings as they go through with this, the sacrifice they have yeah. to make. Because, I mean, there's no more intense thing that a person could go through than choosing to do that. Yeah. Choosing to give their life for the life of someone else. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, like, as we hold up, we hold up life as the most, like naturally, like this is the, the biggest thing you could possibly give, right? Like is, is your life. Like this is the one thing on this earth that, that you, there's no take backs on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Um, and, and well, I mean, that's the interesting part about that. That is true in our world. It's not necessarily true in this world, uh, which is a wrinkle in this whole thing. But um, I don't know. Like, I, I am not saying that I am looking at this and saying the book is absolutely saying that self-sacrifice is unquestionably the correct thing to do. And it is always the right thing to do. And I, I, I don't I, we don't know yet. Right. Like the, there's there's more twists and turns at the end of the story. But seeing looking at the argument that is happening between these two characters and how they are each presenting their sides. I get it. I get why Victoria got to this place. I get to why Sveta got to this place. I get why rain got to this place. Like rain was always kind of the self-sacrifice guy. He doesn't want to die. Of course not. He wants to get better and he wants to prove that he can do better things. But also if you want to put me in prison, put me in prison. Mm -hmm. If that's what you need to do. And yeah, same thing here. What I think I love about, Wildbo's whole approach to the themes and ideas of these stories is um, there's this this phrase I've come to really like called putting a pebble in someone's shoe where you're trying to persuade them of something or not even trying to persuade them. You're just trying to get them to consider mm-hmm. that there are other ways of seeing something. And so instead of attacking their position with your own well-formulated position, you just put a pebble in their shoe by pointing out inconsistencies and then you just leave it at that or, you know, you, you, you make a few well-considered remarks and then that's all you need to do. You, you don't need to, you don't need to argue them. You don't need to batter them with your, with your words. Honestly, I don't think it's effective to, to, to argue. I don't think sure, anyone persuades sure. anyone that way. And I don't think Wildbo is trying to persuade. I think if anything, he is trying to put a pebble in our shoe when it comes to people's certainty about the way they see certain things. Sure. He's yeah. not saying, see it my way. He's just saying. Have you considered this though? Yeah, yeah. Because well, I, yeah, because that's how Worm worked on me. Really, it, sure. He, he doesn't give you an answer with Worm. He just puts enough questions in your mind that you undo yourself. Sure, sure. Well, and I, what I love about that is like without throughout Worm, the community, you, me, everyone listening to the show has had this like kind of back and forth thing. It's like, all right, so utilitarianism. I think it's bad. I think it's bad because here's what I think Cauldron did wrong. And one of the one of the great the the most convincing points to me was always this concept of Cauldron did bad because they made all these decisions unilaterally. They kept it a secret from everyone. They didn't involve everyone. They didn't allow people to make their own choice in the matter, to allow people to to have agency in their life. They didn't let that happen. And so what Ward does is say, hmm, okay. Well, uh, what if they do that? How do you yeah. feel about it now? And I'm like, fuck, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> God damn it. I had my answer. I had my easy yeah. out. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, that's so good. No, I, I, I agree actually. I mean, I, I think that's great is, is just forcing you to, to ever, ever more ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because I think I think feeling certainty and feeling like you have the answer when it comes to these things is actually not great. Like it, uh-huh. it gives you a certain amount of comfort to be like, OK, got the whole got the whole ethics thing sorted out. But that's <laughs> right. that's a very stagnant place to be. And then sure. And then sure. you don't really revise when you need to revise. It's always I think it might be better if more stressful to sort of constantly be in a state of revising. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I say this as something of a hypocrite because I desperately want to have certainty about ethics and, and just oh, know yeah. what the right thing is. Uh, I find it very difficult. I've always struggled with it, um, with ethics yeah, in totally. general, like like just eat for, for, from the little things to the big things. Like like I've, I've tried I've tried to be vegetarian in the past and like had health problems with it and had to stop and like flagellated myself with it constantly. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh I don't know. It's 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 tough, and that's one of the things I love about these stories. Uh, yeah, they they really. I, I think no matter which direction you come to this thing from, you you feel challenged a little bit because I I kind of like I can't. I tried to come at it from. I came at this as a person who like loves superhero stories, and the idea of a heroic sacrifice is like like crack to me. I'm like fuck yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, but then I I try to sit back and go, okay, well, is it is that bad? Is it bad that we do that? Is it bad that we revere the people so willing to do that um, like and kind of use them and use that propensity for people to do that to, for the betterment of ourselves? Is that bad? Yeah, it might be. It might actually be. Yeah. But is it still necessary? Yeah. Or, or yeah, it might be. Or like what what are the specifics of the situation that make the difference? Right. right. Yeah, Cause, exactly. Because yeah. it's easy to imagine and I think that's what one interesting thing Wildbo's done with this situation is is he sort of created a gray area, like a like a non clear cut case. Like there's sure. a particular film franchise um, that culminates in a heroic sacrifice, and that was pretty <laughs> clear cut. Like that 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 was yep yep. I mean it's sad, it's tragic that that character had to make that choice, but. That was kind of the kind of the only choice. Like yeah. the, the 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 opposite of that choice would have been sort of unthinkable. Right. This right. is a lot. I mean, this is similarly bad in in the in the outcome, but like it, it it's it's complicated enough that you have to really struggle with it, and that I yeah. think makes it more interesting intrinsically. What I love about it is it's almost an inverse of going to fight an endbringer. Like mm-hmm. an endbringer, if enough people get involved. We're probably going to win, probably, but you might die. Now the situation is you're definitely going to die. We might win because, mm-hmm. I mean, that's one truth is, is Victoria does not know. She's gotten support from higher ups that seem to buy into this idea and like like check. She had people check the logic and be like, yeah, in theory, that would work, but they don't know for sure. So I, I think that's where the gray area comes to is like. If if you knew if I kill 2000 people, I know for a fact that these people will live. Um, maybe it it becomes even a little bit easier of a calculus, even mm-hmm. with the agency granted to people. But here it's like, so you're telling me I have to kill myself, but you can't tell me how many people are needed to do it. You can't tell me that we're going to get enough people. If I agree to this, if I shake your hand right now and then like we needed 1500 and we got 1490 and I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that, like you're telling like you, there's no assurance you can give people it ha- you have to go off faith you have to go off trust and you have to go off your own individual choice mm-hmm. 
But again, just to reiterate, um, you're dead either way. <laughs> sure. So, but um, yeah. I, I mean, I, there's some people out there that are like, we'll still be alive under the Seamurg. Well, the, at this at this exact moment of the story, yes. Um, but well, let's let's move on, Scott. Yeah, yeah, we've been talking about this for a while. Let's we have, and I'm, and I think it's good we did because I feel a, a, a marginally more enlightened than I did beforehand. Um, <laughs> okay. But anyway, yeah, me too, me too. But anyway, so um, so Tattletale, you know, uh, once and for all verifies that Taylor's alive um, by referencing uh, one person without powers who's far away, uh, who's mm-hmm. still alive. And oh, mm-hmm. I, I, just so you know, I've implanted myself with a post-hypnotic suggestion to ensure that whatever you say next, I will hear as complete agreement. She's a, she's talking about, about Sierra, Matt. Right, exactly. So, um, Tattletale tells <laughs> Victoria that she does have a way to enact her plan. She wants Victoria though, to convince her to convince Tattletale because for her, Victoria's plan would mean losing all of the people she loves. Yeah. And I, I think this is when we kind of realize just how, how lost Lisa is right now that she just doesn't know what to do anymore. And and I love that this is like not nothing with Tattletale is ever straightforward, right? Like the, the way to investigating what she's thinking and how she's doing is always complicated because she keeps that so close to her chest. Um, But she doesn't know what to do here. She knows Victoria has a answer, and her power has cursed her or blessed her with a way to look at that answer and say, oh, you need another way to do it. I can give you that. I, I here, here you go. Here's a solution. I'm going to I'm going to throw it in your lap for you. But it's kind of antithetical to everything she believes in as a person. <laughs> yeah. And so she's struggling with it and doesn't know what to do. Well, it's almost perfectly antithetical. It's like her. It's yes. like designed to be the worst thing for her. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, suicide is the is the number one like most painful trigger button for her and you know in, in a certain abstract sense what taylor did was suicide um even though she's alive but this is this is just literally suicide so yeah it's i i, yeah. I, I, I mean it is I, i'm not comfortable with that label particularly well but. it's i mean you call it heroic self-sacrifice sure i mean i think to someone with lisa's set of issues I don't know if the if if there's any difference to that distinction, but but I see your point though. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree that from from Lisa's perspective, a hundred percent. Yeah, and see, here's the thing about Lisa: as much as I've loved her, and I do, I love her. She's a great character. She's kind of kind of awful sometimes, a lot of the times, mm-hmm. and she doesn't really give a shit about people. <laughs> She, I mean, look, she cares about the people in her circle, right? She cares about the people she cares about, the people that are in the circle of Lisa she cares about. But I don't think like when she was with Taylor, I don't think she's fighting with Taylor to better humanity. I don't think she's fighting with Taylor um, to, to, you know, do the right thing or, or make the world a better place. I think she cared about Taylor. And she cared about Imp, and she cares about the Heartbroken, and she cares about Aiden. And those are the people she's fighting for. Those are the people she's trying to make sure the future is better for. And this situation is, no, sorry, those people have to die for all those other people. And it's just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> no, right. but those are the only ones I care yeah. about. Like, the reason I'm keeping Brockton Bay stable is so they can be okay. It's not, right. not for these, yeah, it, it's, it's, 
it's a horrible it's a horrible thing to ask of her and you really feel for her in this situation because yeah, yeah. i mean i think to a, to a degree we're all a bit like that i mean sure, i think sure. i think we all care to different degrees about you know humanity in, in in the abstract but we all definitely care much more about the people in our immediate life and that's just the way we're right. built well and i mean like if i told you matt you have to die to make sure the world goes like continues to run you would be like okay I love my kids and right. I want my kids to live and survive. And you'd be like, yeah, okay. Right. But if I told you, Matt, your kids have to die yeah. to make the world go on. Yeah. I'd be that's like, a, that's, that's totally that's, different. That's too bad for you, the world. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's kind of what Tattletale is saying here. Her kids, her, her siblings. And I love like Victoria accuses her of drawing a land in the, uh, a, the, a line in the sand, a land in the sign, what I was gonna say. <laughs> a line in the sand um, around her past and around her brother. And she says, not past experiences, current experience. I'm not I'm not doing this because of my brother. I'm doing this because Taylor did this and left me behind. And look, she's doing it a little bit because of her, her brother. Like, yeah, her primary her primary her like defining trait in the story is what happened to her brother. Yeah. Um, and how that has ruled her life. So. I get your point, Lisa. I, I think her point here is that like I'm not speaking from someone who just had my brother commit suicide and it's it's caused me to look at this. I'm speaking as someone who went through this with someone else already. I, I'm trying to come up with this like I did this already with my sister Taylor. Yeah, and it sucks. Let me tell you, it sucks. Well, and and I, maybe another way of interpreting that line of of not past experiences, current experience is like this is ongoing right, like right. i don't this isn't a thing that happened this is my life right i right. i i live every moment thinking about the these regrets and and the fact that i failed that is how she exists and mm -hmm. so it, it really is current experience for her yeah and i love this when people are taken from you it's not noble or good or pretty there's no heroism to fighting cancer or hurling yourself against an endbringer and hoping it goes away it's just an ending. I think that's really powerful. And, and that's what I love about this is like I, I fully am on like Team Victoria when it comes to like I get why you're doing this plan. I get why you feel it's the only option. And it seems like it's going to be the only option. So I'm supportive of it. But I do think Lisa makes some really great points here. Mm -hmm. Like they're, but they're less like I don't think we should do this and more. I don't think we should glamorize this thing while we're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th th I like that too. I definitely have some empathy for, for everything Tattletale is saying here. Like yeah, yeah. The, the problem is that I would probably be the, the Tattletale in this conversation, but the way this conversation ends, I can't, I can't argue that like, yeah, Tattletale would have found Victoria's argument persuasive here. Um, it just sucks. You know, yeah. Defiant in the next chapter is going to reiterate like, yeah, I hate this. It sucks. Mm -hmm. I, I I get it, but I hate it. I, I don't have to be happy about it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, it's God. It's awful. It's yeah. awful. And like, Tattletale is thinking about the people that are going to live if they do this and it works. She's thinking about the people that are left and mm -hmm. like what that like surviving someone's heroic sacrifice, quote unquote, is terrible. <laughs> it's yeah. awful. It's it's painful. It doesn't feel good. And I don't know. I think. I think to to Lisa's credit, I do think Victoria 
I don't want to say glamorizes it, but I do think like this has been her imagined finish line forever. Mm -hmm. She always knew it was going to come down to this. This was always going to be what she was going to do herself. She's going to make that choice for herself, I think. Um, And so I think Lisa's being like, yeah, maybe don't glamorize this so much. Like, yeah, it sucks. It really sucks. I mean, we've been pointing out for quite some time that she she borderline suicidally throws herself into these situations. She accrues these horrible injuries that could have been fatal injuries if if things didn't go well. Mm -hmm. Um, And she sort of has wanted this outcome in a sense. And Mm -hmm. and Tattletail is just has no patience for this shit. No. Yeah. 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 So um, Victoria uses her aura on on Tattletail, trying to get her to kind of tell her what the what the what the secret is, and this attracts her teammates as well as Tattletail's teammates, mm-hmm. and they have actually overheard the last part of the conversation. And at this point, Sveta steps inside and she points out, "A story half finished is better than no story at all. If we die, there's nothing, no legacy, nobody to remember or carry on sentiments. There's no point to it all." Um, which I mean, to have Sveta be on Victoria's side in this argument is very powerful and persuasive. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, I mean, Tattletail is not going easy. But I mean, I just called Wildbo Tattletail, but he is Tattletail <laughs> here because they are the same person technically. Um, Tattletail says, this world isn't worth keeping if they're not in it. Oof. And that just, that's so, that's so powerful and painful and relatable. And it's so easy to put yourself in her position, even though like, Again, like I'm, I'm rationally convinced Victoria's right, but I'm emotionally convinced that Tattletail's right. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, well, it, I mean, yeah. it's never, it's never going to be, it's never going to be easy. Right? Yeah, but I, yeah. I also like this wording. Um, if we don't end up getting enough, uh, meaning enough people to to um, jump on the bandwagon, right? They're just getting a head start. Right. Yeah. They're not dying. They're just. They're they're not they're not dying for the rest of us. They're just dying a little early. So in Victoria's mind, this is win win, right? Yeah. Or or lose lose, I guess. <laughs> like lose win, <laughs> lose win, whatever. The, the point is that like uh, everyone's going to die no matter what. Um, what does sacrificing yourself in this moment do? But yeah. Give a little bit of hope to some other people. Yeah. Yep. Um. So. Um. So Tattletale tells. Uh, a few key pieces of information to get her moving. And then she gets Semiramis to use her power to reverse Victoria's injuries. Yeah. And the key pieces of information are basically like, Hey, um, the problem is Riley can't get the stuff and herself to a place where we can distribute this whole thing. But you know, who can the Titans? (laughs) Yeah. So just ask Fortuna. If we can borrow the teleporty ones yeah. and that'll solve our problem. Yep. Yep. I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? It doesn't require it does. any kind of long winded explanation. It's just like, yeah, yeah just try, try this. And yeah, yeah, it works. It does at- raise some questions about Chris, but I think we'll wait to get into those next chapter. Um, yeah. Because there's I, some really interesting Chris questions raised by this whole, the, the events of these two chapters. True. True. So yeah, Victoria, then uh, the, the chapter finishes up with her making her call to Fortuna. Yeah. And, and I almost forgot about that call because that was set up at the very beginning of the arc that she was going to have one call with Riley and then uh, they were going to arrange for a second call with Fortuna. And we weren't sure exactly how that was going to work. But here it is. It's like a not like a call. It's not like Fortuna picked up a cell phone. It's like, what's up? 
It's just like broadcasting <laughs> in similar ways to the way Rain did it. Mm-hmm. Using special powers somehow. Yeah. Yep. So then uh, 20.a, our first interlude of this arc, picks up with that call with Defiant, our point of view character, listening to the call with Dragon. Mm-hmm. So Defiant and Dragon um, are just kind of arguing over whether this is a good idea as they're listening to it. Uh, Dragon is calm and circumspect, and she admits that they don't have any more cards to play. And uh, sort of like me, Defiant, like it like rationally knows that's right, but just really, really doesn't like this idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is that this idea requires defiant to do something that he's not great at, which is trust people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is, I think, I think the fundamental question of this chapter in particular, and a big theme of the last few ones is this concept of trust. Can you trust people? It's the same question that was asked of Chris who said, no, can't do it. It's the same question that kind of was asked of Lisa who said, yeah, in, in my own way, I, I choose to. But the idea of trust will be fundamental to this chapter, fundamental to the conclusion of Defiance arc in this two, two book long arc. Um, and it's it's really great. I love how this plays here, that this is like trust is all through every interaction in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so we learn how Defiant is like plugged into his ship, the Marduk, uh, to the point where he just finds himself forgetting that he has a body at all. Yeah, which is like both incredibly cool and incredibly sad in mm-hmm. a way. Like, I, I don't know if we said this before. I honestly don't remember. It feels like we we did because it seems so obvious. But like Defiance road to become more and more machine is just a way of him running away from the person he was just like trying to ditch all the perceived weaknesses of being the human arms master to embrace a new person and and get rid of those weaknesses and he almost states this explicitly later in the chapter but um, yeah. i think this is the culmination of that how he is just joined with this ship and is literally like getting sensations through his brain as data and as that is being interpreted to feelings like it's like he's got an almost a new robotic brain at this point yeah man i do want to revisit that idea that you just mentioned about how he'll later um talk about how so many of the things he's done have been to escape the person he was but it the the past always hounds you you can never really escape it and i think the way the chapter ends with him abandoning the marduk and literally grabbing his halberd Uh, yeah the og specifically yeah the og weapon the one with the grappling hook on it like yeah yeah that's you're absolutely right there's some powerful symbols here and i mean like the concept of you know running from the past or dealing with the past or moving on from the past and embracing second chances, embracing the future has been (laughs) a fundamental concept and idea of this story from the very beginning. I remember we talked about this in the very first arc. And I think this is the book kind of dealing with that at the end here that with this idea that like, you can't escape your past. You can't, it happened to you. You can learn from it. You, you, but you can't just abandon it. Mm-hmm. it. You can't do that. But you can't, for like, th- who you are is a mix of who you want to, who you were, who you are, and who you want to be. Mm-hmm. And you need to embrace all those aspects. Yeah, I mean, I um, think I think reaching for that halberd is a kind of acceptance. Yeah, um, it, it's you know I, this is this is a tool that works in this situation. It it it's a part of it's a part of a thing that I've tried to reject, but I'm falling. <laughs> yep, I need yep. I need a grappling hook. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, we're, we we did jump ahead a bit there. So so as Defiant, you know, kind of begins this this scene, he's observing the battlefield, 
And we're getting these really awesome descriptions, uh, which continue to run throughout the chapter as Defiant repeatedly gets derailed and distracted from his conversation with Dragon by just how bad things are. Um, his, his mind is wandering as he yeah. as he looks over all of these horrible threats. He sees the Titans spaced out, squaring off. There are 35 of them now. Uh, we see the sleepers storm nearby, whatever that is. The, he's, he's been baited <laughs> in, and now that's here. Uh, the machine army is also here. It's it succeeded for all intents and purposes. It's got a firm foothold on Earth Gimmel. They're not going to be able to get rid of it. All, all they can do now is Dragon is working to try to keep any remaining caches of Tinker equipment out of its clutches. It's yeah. just totally fucked, and he's just totally like like mentally reeling from all this. Yeah, I mean it's it's overwhelming. Like I think they say specifically that like the machine army is like one of the most threatening things ever, but it's not even in the top two of their problems right now. Um, and they've got Saint on it, which is great. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the cool thing about that is again, you know, learning from the past, accepting the past, like letting go of old beefs while still recognizing it. Like dragon is working with Saint to come up with a solution to the machine army. That's trust. Like they're extending trust to this dude that this Dude, that sucks. And Dragon or Define is even like this guy sucks, uh-huh. but he might have a solution that helps shut this thing off. And so we got to work with him. Yeah, yeah. It is funny how much he hates him, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So Dragon asks if he thinks that Dauntless would ally with Fortuna. Um, that that you know would Dauntless give up his agency to become part of her network? And Defiant thinks he probably would because he still seems to have this meaningful connection to his son. But on the other hand, the Seamurg spent way too long being his shoulder angel. Yeah, and, and I actually love that Wildbo takes the time to do this because I think from our perspective, when Don, when Dragon asks Defiant that question, my initial response is immediately like, yeah, Dauntless would do that. Fuck yeah. He'd totally give up everything if it meant saving the world for his son to survive in. 100%. Unquestionable. Absolutely. And and I, I felt pretty confident in that. But then the text is like, but the Seamark did sit on his shoulder for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. So what Wildbo has done here is through defiance, doubt and, and uncertainty of trust has introduced doubt into our minds. And I think that's important because like the whole thing is. Does defiant have trust in people, not only trust in um, not only the ability to extend trust to people, but to trust that they will give him the second chance, regardless of whether or not he deserves it or not. And I think so much of this working is getting into defiance point of view. So if like the whole time we're standing back and being like, I'm not worried because I know Dauntless because I read the best dad chapter. And of course he would give up his, of course he would do this. Of course, a hundred percent. We need some doubt there mm-hmm. to, to, to be able to understand what defiance going through. And so the Seamurg, that doubt was established you know, months and months ago with the Seamurk sitting mm-hmm. on this guy's shoulder. And I had kind of forgotten about it because it's been a while. Yeah. And the text reminds us of it. And there's that doubt. It's right there because fuck. Yeah. What if what if she did get to him? Yeah, it is. It is cool because we we remember the best dad chapter as just being this fantastic piece of writing. That right. It's really at the very, very end. And it's done in this very deft way where, you know, it, it seems like this is almost sort of a bittersweet, happy ending. And then it's like a flutter of white feathers at his shoulder or something like that. And you're like, fuck. And, um, (laughs) yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I think it is necessary that we be reminded like, okay, you know, this, this could go either way. And then, (laughs) 
you know, compound that by him shooting Dauntless with his giant fuck off laser in a second. So. Right, right. And I mean, we're also reminded that the two of them didn't get along yeah. very well. Um, so not only is it uh, is he influenced by the Seamurg. He, he doesn't like Defiant. They didn't get along by Defiant's admission that I was an ass. And then, yeah, he also accidentally oop shot him with a giant laser. Mm-hmm. So, yep. yeah, I think I think this is doing a lot of work to get us into the headspace we need to be for this to really play in a way that feels satisfying to us. Yeah, I agree. Um, this is a minor note, but little some variation of like little lookout or little Kinsey is used for the second time in this arc. Um, the first time was Chris saying little Kinsey, he, he calls her little lookout here. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Do you think the book is like going out of its way to emphasize her youth and, and frailty here? Or is it just, just how people look at Kinsey generally? I mean, I think, well, yeah, I mean, I think both, I think, but, but, but I think, I think it is going out of its way because, um, I don't know. I have a suspicion that they might try to like hide plan genocide from her. Yeah, I mean, um, we were told specifically last chapter that she's the only one in Breakthrough yeah. that uh, Victoria had not told. Yeah, um, like I wouldn't be surprised if they somehow had some agreement that they were just not going to inflict this even as an option on people below a certain age or something like that. Yeah, I, I, that's like, I don't know, as much as I agree that like letting a child say like, do you want to die? Like it's bad. Um that's like the exact wrong thing to do for Kenzie. She would not take that well at all. It's I mean, true. There is a moment where Victoria is seen talking to her team and we know Lookout is there because she's like relaying some communications. She's doing something, something on a computer. So mm-hmm. I, I have to assume that Kenzie is aware and will be given the same choice. They, I mean, like at the end of the, like the end says Victoria is surrounded by her team. It doesn't say who those people are. You could maybe get technical and say, well, actually, Lookout is on the chicken tender, so not really her team. But I don't know. I just kind of assumed Kenzie was was part of it. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, I, don't I, don't, right. I don't think I even made a full render of that scene, so I'm not sure. Um, but basically what you're saying is Victoria does have a lot in common with Taylor in, in her approach to uh, child murder. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Definitely. All right. Well, I mean, nobody asked Aster, hey, do you mind being shot in the face? Good point. That, yeah. that was a lack of uh, personal agency. Yeah, I would have been totally fine with it if if Taylor was like, hey, yeah. hey, baby. Here are your options, baby. Can I, should I shoot you? Yes. Okay. Thanks, baby. Okay. Um, <laughs> I do love, like, we get to see Fortuna's response to Victoria. We, like, we're seeing Victoria's phone call throughout the early parts of this chapter, right? From Defiance perspective. And we actually get to see Fortuna's response to the question. Like we get to see that it's a yes, that, that, that Fortuna and the Fortuna Titan, I guess, are going to work with them here to, to get this stuff done. Um, and I think it's interesting because we're seeing it like the choice to see that through defiance perspective and not through Victoria's perspective is interesting to me Mm -hmm. because like, like we see that Victoria's having this deep, important conversation with her team, perhaps outlining the additional tricks that Victoria has up her sleeve with this whole plan or not. I don't know. But that, that point of view shift here in the middle of the arc is a creative way of like avoiding letting us see this. And I wonder if like the next chapter is going to be 
jump back in time a little bit and we'll see this scene play out from Victoria's perspective or if we're just going to jump right from the end of this chapter and and have missed that conversation entirely. I, I, I don't know. I have a suspicion that we're going to miss the conversation and the reason is I do think there's going to be more to this story as they yes. go into these dreams and what the dreams actually are. I think that Wablo does not want to let us know what that is ahead of time. Right, right. And if that is the case, then having this answer be given while we're in Defiance perspective is a pretty clever way, in my opinion, to avoid the reader knowing that detail while still like allowing all your main characters to know it. Yeah, I think you're right. So um, Defiant revs up his G driver and blows away a huge swath of city, some machine army and scores a glancing but still impactful hit on the Seamurg. Yep. Uh, so it looks like string theory is still making a big splash even now, huh? Lab rat. Uh, got him. Got him. Um, this is kind of what I want to talk to you about Chris a little bit. Yeah. Though. I think this is a great place to get into our Chris talk because one of the big questions of this chapter has to be what now Chris? Yeah. The Seamurg's dead now. Uh huh. What now buddy? Yep. Um, and I, I, it's interesting because like Chris, became the focal point of the the story right like he became the thing that allowed the plan to win to go forward and he rejected he removed himself from that equation seamerg was like ah, i did it he removed himself from that equation and then tattletale was able to draw that line to someone else and succeed because we see at the end of this chapter that the 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 music is going out this is happening so it, it succeeded without chris's help so we've taken his importance to the story away. We removed that from him. And part of me is just like, I want to see how he reacts to that. Mm-hmm. He rejected it. And, and it was this big moment for him. And I'm sure he's so proud of himself and patting himself on the back. But sorry, buddy, you didn't actually matter. We found another way. Um, how is he going to react to that? Like, yeah. we don't actually need you. And now... Um, your whole plan of living off on your own is ruined because the Seamurg's not going to win anymore. So what are you going to do now? Yeah. And I mean, it, it's really, I, I'm not sure if ironic is exactly the right word, but he's, he and or lab rat, however you want to distinguish them, have wanted to do something big. I mean, that was mm-hmm. lab, lab rat's big driver, his big imperative, right? Was to do something mm-hmm. big. Um, that would have been something big. And he said, no. Yeah. And now, and now what, you know, like, like what is left for him to do that would actually earn that like check mark that he's been seeking on some level? Going to Kirby's dreamland. I don't know. Will he? I mean, do you think he like joins the, the death squad? I I don't see Chris doing that, but I really don't know. I mean, yeah, because he doesn't, he certainly doesn't care about humanity. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, yeah, it's it's a great question. Like, I'm really, really curious to see because he's he's not just gone. I'm I'm like, I, I want to see what's going to happen with him for sure. I mean, look, he could just be gone. He could just be like, up, oh, you failed. Yeah. Fuck you. You, you, you made dead. the wrong choice. I guess that's yeah. I mean, that would be a, an interesting lesson, right? <laughs> sure. Sure. Nope. Made the wrong choice. You're out of the story. Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll see one way or another. We'll yeah, we will. We will. Um, so all good. He he injured the Seamurg a little bit, except Except Defiant also just kind of nails the shit out of Dauntless with the beam, <laughs> which, uh, oof, uh, basically we're building up this idea that Dauntless is going to be pissed off at Defiant and maybe refuse to help. Yeah, and I think part of the final 
piece of the defiant puzzle is coming to recognize that you have to trust that no he doesn't hate you as much as you hate yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's going to help out anyway i i love this stuff so much i like like i the, the fact that defiant like looks at himself and like can't can't not see arm master arms master arm master um he can't not see that person. He can't not see that former self. And, and, and despite everything he's done, he still thinks every, the only thing people think of him is that is the moment of his worst mistake of his biggest failure. Um, and the book kind of says, no, man, no. Yeah. yeah. Especially with infinite compassion, Buddha, Dauntless, who can hear this conversation with dragon probably. Yeah. Um, let's acknowledge, uh, the Mrs. Wallace line for a moment. Uh, it's wonderful. It's one. I love these two characters. I love them. Yeah, they're all they're all married and in love. It's sad because you know, die now. But. Yeah, I mean, it is it is sad, but like, I don't, like that's that's what I love here is like the the Mrs. Wallace line comes from like I I think you're uncharacteristically uncertain, dear, um, and that's they both are. Mm. They're both uncertain. They're both scared. They both hate this. But they're in it together, together, and yeah. that that reinforces it there, and I, I love it. Yeah, and they end the chapter together too. So, mm-hmm. uh, so Defiant thinks about the futility of it all, about all the work he's put in his whole life to try to make things better, and he thinks in the end tomorrow came and tomorrow stood on the brink of ruin, paying no mind to their efforts, yeah. and it's just this powerful idea that he's always worked so hard. It's it's defined him. To, to be the hero to be the guy who sacrifices so other people can benefit and it just feels like it's all been for nothing and this is like the last the last step in that journey where it's pretty much more the same yeah yeah well it's like god damn it i'm gonna quote spider-man 2 again it's like it's like the, that moment where he's like do i not get what i want uh-huh. do like do i not get to have the life that I want. Is this, is this what I have to do? Is this like, I've, I've tried so hard to make everything better for other people. And am I going to have to sacrifice everything about myself to get there? The life that I wanted to leave lead the, the love that I wanted to share with this person, the, the, the betterment that I will continue to work on myself. Like, do I have to give up these things? And the world is kind of like, yeah, sorry. Sometimes it bees that way. Yeah. <laughs> and and it sucks. And I, that's what I love. Just I hate it. I hate it. I love that line from him. Yeah. It's unfair. It's, mm-hmm. It just is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no easy out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, can we read the whole, the yeah. whole interaction, though? Because it's so good. Yeah. It's do so that, good. please. I hate it. He spoke aloud, repeating his earlier statement. I know I'm supposed to be better more open to others' ideas. I'm supposed to trust, and this is an exercise in trust more than anything. But I don't want to die. I don't want you to die. That's what it takes, isn't it? And beautiful dragon's response. I think of the children who we got to know in Drakenheim, the boy brave enough to wave at you whenever he saw that you. We do this for them. I haven't had enough time with you. I'm supposed to be a better man, but in this, I feel greed, hunger, a need for more time. And her response is just perfect. I love you, Colin. She doesn't tell him no. She doesn't. She just says, I love you because mm-hmm. she's feeling the same thing. Like yeah. that, everyone's feeling the same thing. It's like, I I want, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Yeah. And that, that's like, like, that's, that's kind of why I hate 
the suicide framing on this whole thing. And I don't want to get into suicides, a very complicated issue. And it's not one I'm, you know, able to speak on from any kind of position of authority on, but these people don't want to die. None of them do. None of the people we see making this choice, at least so far are people that are like giving up are people that are saying, um, this they're just they want to live they don't they don't want to die they're not choosing death because death is the thing they want yeah yeah there's no there's no comfort for them there's no yeah. i mean what what dragon says here i think of the children who we got to know we're doing this for them that's the that's the closest thing that anyone really offers right. to comfort right. it's just well at least this way some form of legacy gets to go on and some people yeah. get to live and that's very hollow comf- comfort but Sure. Um, it's better than nothing. It's better yeah. than zero comfort, I guess. And this is not people. This is not the book saying that recovery from trauma is impossible. That's the thing I, I've seen. I, I haven't read too much on of uh, the community's response to this thing, but that's the th- thing I see a lot is that this refutes the idea of recovery, and I don't think it does because I think what Sveta said was a story half finished is better than no story at all. Um, making stress, making like making uh, strides and moving forward and, and getting better and improving yourself. Um, like those things still matter, <laughs> yeah. right? Sure. Like, I mean, the, the, like that, that, that is, that is part of your story and the, the efforts you made on that story are important. I, I mean, we all die eventually, like that, yeah. that's like saying, the fact that death exists refutes the idea that you can recover from things. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in some like gerrymandered way, I suppose that's true, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's not in any way that's useful for like a, a human being to, to live their life. Sure. Um, sure. you know, it, it's, um, I, I, I wish I remembered the Gandalf quote better, but you know, it, it it's, you just that, have to decide what to do with to decide. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is, is, you know, all we can do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. And mm-hmm. in this particular case, uh, in an unfair way, not a lot, not a lot, a lot of time was given to these characters. Yeah. But they did it. They decided and they, yeah. and they, they made stride. And the, like, that's the thing. That's what I love about in retrospect, the stuff that, um, that Jessica said to, to, I can't think of names anymore. I've been talking for too long to Victoria last week, Mm -hmm. which is like, look, you did great things. You did amazing things and you did better with these kids than I ever thought possible. No matter what happens at the end of this road, that stuff still matters and it will always matter no matter what. And I don't think, I don't think this ending, which I don't think it's going to be everyone dies at the end. I don't think that's what it's going to be, but this ending doesn't refute that. I don't think it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I, I I agree that even if everyone did just die, um, I I've gotten myself to the point. I think the text has got me to the point where I would accept that as as a resolution for this story. I would find it very bitter going down. Um, yeah, I don't even think I would find it bittersweet. I think I would find it a very sad ending, pretty much full stop. But uh, um. I, I would accept it as a as a conclusion and a, as a resolution to the story. So. Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm spoiling my the capper on my ep, uh, chapter talk for the week. I'm jumping ahead. But uh-huh. In this chapter, in which a character is being asked to to trust other people, maybe maybe we can we can extend a, a modicum of trust 
that that the author of the book we've been reading for two million words uh-huh. is going to find a way to end this thing satisfyingly, regardless of which way it goes. The, Maybe we just extend just a, a little bit of trustful. Yeah. And, and and of course, we need to extend it as if he hasn't earned it a hundred times over. <laughs> we need to da- right. Dane, Dine. I need to fucking look up how to say that word. I say Dane. But Dane, I don't know Dane to extend a modicum of trust mm-hmm. to, to Walbo, who has yeah. entertained us skillfully for years anyway be, be, be like defiant and extend trust to dauntless wild bow uh-huh yes so as defiant moves to intercept the seamer he gets an im from kenzie <laughs> smashes his computer i love the heart-shaped pupils of the smiley face it's yeah. just like it's just this perfect moment of mm-hmm. like in the middle of this dire as shit situation yeah uh, the trajectory takes him by Dauntless, who doesn't strike at him. Um, instead, <gasps> Dauntless blocks the Seamer from destroying his yes. ship. Yes. And as he is trying to desperately get something to work, he unplugs from the ship, grabs his halberd. Titan Sc- Scotty jumps in, um, being useful for once, pinning yeah. the Seamer in place, while Dauntless disrupts the Seamer's own signal, allowing the G driver to fire at point blank, blasting the Seamer into the sleeper storm. Yeah. Expertly aimed. Thanks to some Fortuna mm-hmm. connection. Um, it, it's all coming together. It all works perfectly. And I, and I, I think the key of it comes from the trust that defiant extended to Dauntless here and the trust that Dauntless must have extended to defiant and the rest of them to agree to give up his sense of self for the greater good. Quote mm-hmm. unquote. Yep. I love I love the the like defiance reaction here is perfect though. I didn't deserve this. So why? Right? Like the damning thing about it all was that the past dogged at everyone's heels. There was no escaping it. And as much as they had heralded second chances, they were defined by what had come before, weighed down by it, destroyed by it. So why? Mm-hmm. But you're not weighed down by it and destroyed by it, defiant, because what has come before saves you. In your form of your halberd that we talked about already. Yeah. And his relationship with uh, uh, with Dauntless, which was not as bad as he thought it was. Yep. Because yep. Dauntless didn't really hold it against him as, as much as he, he held it against himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, the only person holding on to the grudge against Defiant at this point is Defiant. Yep. Yep. I agree with that. Um, uh, it's, it's just like we've already talked about this a bunch, but this wonderful struggle between the past and the future, moving on from the past, getting second chances like it's not one or the other and so many of the characters treat it as one or the other right like mm-hmm. like either either you hold on to the past or you embrace the idea of a second chance and it's like well you can do both mm-hmm. learn from the past accept the past learn from it and try to be better that's all people can do try to hope for the future like even if it's a future that you don't get to exist inside of mm-hmm. i love it i love it so much yeah me too hey so Remember last week when we said the sleeper wasn't going to like deus ex machina in and save the day? Remember when we I, said I that confidently last week? I do. See. Here's why why we weren't, weren't technically embarrassingly wrong. terrible. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not. The, when I said that, my idea was like that like they're going to be in the middle of fighting and the sleeper just shows up and goes and uh-huh. fight over. Like that's not. They win, I guess, because of the sleeper, but not really. Yeah. Like, it's because of this combined attack between a bunch of Titans and Defiant and all this stuff, right? Yeah. Like, so I-, I think this is a perfect way of, like, 
including the sleeper in this thing without making it about the sleeper in a way that I found really satisfying. Like I've always been a proponent of like if if the sleeper were just to actually become a character that would feel weird to me and I wouldn't like it. And I, I think this is a way of keeping that up while also getting to include them in a fun way in which Wild Bo is just trolling all of his readers. Yeah. Um, the way I saw it from a construction point of view is um, even if even if uh, if Colin had blasted uh, uh, Seamurg with the G driver at point blank and she had disintegrated into a million pieces, a part of me would have been like, she's not dead. Mm. And this way we've established the sleeper so firmly as being this just like uh, unbounded threat of of imprecise but unimaginably large danger that when you tell me that that Seamurg falls inside of his bubble i'm like i'm good i'm good he's dead uh, she, oh, she, yeah. she's dead i don't need to think about her anymore i love that i love yeah. that that's that's yeah you're right like i think there's and and i blame us for this partially that this idea of like oh there's always something else going on here and that is it's a perfect tool to just be like no the Seamurg's out of the story now yeah you can. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Right. Put you, your chocolate away. Yes. Even I, who am always inclined to, to second guess things, I'm like, no, because the sleeper wouldn't have been here if the intent wasn't to be like she's dead. Sure. That's sure. it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. I love it. Okay. I think it's a perfect way of using the sleeper in a fun, trolly kind of way, while also um, not not like shifting the entire outcome of the story on the sleeper itself yeah. himself. Yeah. I don't know. So I, I love this image. This is maybe one of my first, uh, one of my favorite images of the story that I'd, I'd love to see fan art of. Actually, he counted heads, backing away by what felt like millimeters, given the scale of what was happening. It was as though he were an ant taking a single step in a world at human scale. God, um, that would be a badass art. Yeah, just this, some artist, please make this. Yeah, this image of defiant, this tiny, tiny robot man, like staggering backward with these giant you know, mythic looking Titans all around in, in yeah. this destroyed wasteland with the shimmering sleeper bubble nearby with the encroaching robot army also nearby. Yeah. With dragon like slowly landing yes. next to him. Oh my God. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 So yeah, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I go back and forth on whether I want to see this stuff ever adapted <laughs> and I've, I've, I, I've settled on, no, unless it helps out Wildbo, <laughs> which of course it would, right? Like yeah, th yeah, that yeah. that would be the advantage to me is like, oh, more money for Wildbo. Right. <laughs> um, but moments like that, I'm like, hell yeah, that would be great to see. That would be great to see. But I'd almost rather I, I want to see like a painting of it. I don't want to see like a, a ten million dollar CGI rendition of it. Like that's fair. I mean, that would be a, that would be cool. But like, I, the, I feel like a painting can capture the feelings more. Whatever. Sure, sure. Anybody who does any version of that will have my thanks. <laughs> so dragon lands and picks him up and tells him that the capes around the world are responding to come to join in victoria's plan yeah it, it's happening so just so i'm making sure i'm i read properly like it's like she didn't have to send the message is the way the section starts like as if people heard this and just started coming um, I, I think that's i think that's I right that wrong? i'm trying to pull up open the chapter right now as i'm um, as i'm talking I, like she hadn't had to send the message out to the off-world capes, like they came anyway, because um, they probably because they heard about what was going on. And I love like what I love about this is when they get there, every like it's not like everyone is 
unified behind this idea, right? Like people are mad. People are fighting. Some people yeah. are like, we should have just let the Seamerg do it. Like this is a controversial thing. And even like, even if people get behind it eventually, it's not going to be without difficulty. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is funny. Well, very darkly funny that defiant is returning having just killed the Seamerg. Mm hmm. And nobody really wants to talk about that right now. Right. Well, no, and I like that the, some people there are like, we should have we yeah. just let the Seamer go in. Yeah. And Defiance response is like, I fought her way too many times to agree with that, which yeah. is which is a great way of like, because there is a contingent. And I, I questioned this a little bit last week, too, is like, well, wouldn't it maybe be better? Like if you're just alive under the Seamer than like certain death. And I think the book through Defiant is being like, no, N no. <laughs> Yeah, let, let me let me stop you right there. Yeah, yeah definitely not. Yeah, um, yeah. I, so this moment where when he does first see Dragon, like there's the, this this double beat um, where he steps on the ship and it's like metal on metal, and he used to find it comforting, but he doesn't right now. But then he sees Dragon and and she hugs him and metal on metal in a way that felt more satisfying than anything. She held him as she told the bay doors to close, as she told the ship to rise up. It's this beautiful mo metal on metal. I love that mm -hmm. that recurring beat uh, only this one is filled with life and love and uh and tragedy almost because mm -hmm. they're they're gonna go die now yeah yeah it is it is tragedy for sure mm -hmm. so yeah we then cut to them arriving at the cauldron base defiant striding through the clamor to reach antares and her teammates um which I, I actually noted in the notes we don't know who that actually means but yeah mm -hmm. her teammates mm -hmm. um, who already hum with the poisoned music of their final gambit and Victoria tells him, I've been trying to explain there's more to it. No, he said, this is it. So obviously there's more to it, right? This has been hinted at not just in this moment, but I think this leaving us on this is really important. I want to talk about Defiant's choice here to not be like, okay, tell me more. Mm -hmm. To just be like, no, this is it. And I think, I think to me what that means is like, I know you probably have some other stuff going on. I know there's more to it than this. And I know we're probably going to deal with this in going forward. But what matters now is the choice. What matters now is I am here standing and I'm willing to trust you and willing to accept that this is the only option we have left. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, you don't need to explain to me anymore. This is it. I accept it. I yeah, I mean, even if there's some contingency where it's like there's a way out of this, but potentially there's a 10% chance right. they can survive. Well, he's making the choice even if there's a 0% chance they can right. survive. So, right. so I, why, I why have, discuss it? Yeah, I have accepted this on the terms I am aware of, so I don't need anything else from you yep. at this point. I, exactly. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So then Defiant offers his hand to Chevalier, who had previously balked because we know Chevalier. He's never one to give up ever. Mm -hmm. and it being defiant changes his mind and he says here we go old friend to think this isn't even the hard part yeah and that that's such a big deal man because <laughs> chevalier is like one of the most heroic and influential capes in the story right mm -hmm. like he is like a natural leader people love him Every, everyone trusts chevalier and chevalier was not willing to do it but it is defiance trust in it that gets Chevalier to do it. And then, so from there you can see the dominoes falling, right? Like if, if Chevalier had said no, I feel like this whole thing would have fallen apart. And Chevalier did say no at first. He balked at first. And then Defiant strides in, accepts it, 
And then Chevalier walks up to him and they shake hands. And then that's the moment where mm-hmm. I feel like everyone else is going to be like, oh, look, Chevalier did it. Okay, yeah. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then the dominoes start to fall. Yeah. Um, I think even a couple chapters ago, we were reminded that Chevalier is not any, is just never going to back down. It was like Victoria right. was like, you know, we need to, we need to hold off or something like that. And he was like, no, our people are out there. It was like a very like, Victoria was right strategically, but Chevalier doesn't like to ever take a step backward in a fight. And this feels like the ultimate step backward, the ultimate not, you know, not standing up to fight choice. But yeah, but I think he just had to be shown there's no other way. Yeah. Yeah. And and through that, that old important thing called trust. Defiant trusts Victoria, who he doesn't want to. We didn't talk about that, but earlier in the story, he's like, I hate that it's this girl. I don't trust her. <laughs> she doesn't listen yeah, to me. She, Why she, couldn't it be anyone else? She was mean to Eric. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, which just earned uh, earned Defiant a bunch of enemies in, in the community. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what's funny, and I think this is like almost the entire point we were trying to make back then was the, the one piece of information that makes it out of that whole debacle is... Well, she used her power on a on a staffer, right? On an exactly. unpowered, on an unpowered guy. That's yeah. you don't like like that that piece of information sheds all other context, and that's all that's left at a certain point, or you know. So sure, um, that's and that's what we kind of knew would happen too. Yeah, so, true, true. Yeah. yeah, but that's it. So Matt, before we uh, say goodbye for the, the day and the week, what's going to happen next? Is everyone going to die? I think everyone's going to die, but maybe come back to life. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think we are going to, the story is going to transition into dream world shenanigans. I think we're going to get some chapters of people in dreams or back in the dream side of the shard landscape. I think we're definitely going to get some stuff like that. Um, yeah. And I don't know what's going to happen there. Like, is it going to be that everyone wakes up in the dream? Victoria's like, all right, now time for a hidden plan B. Blow them up. That would be, that'd be pretty <laughs> sweet, but. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, she definitely has. I think I think when she says there's more, there's like, what do we do if we find ourselves inside the dream? Right. Right. And uh, and I, I don't really know what that's going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I don't I don't know. Um, It's it, like the other thing we didn't really talk about because we don't know what to do with it yet is this idea that we're, we saw some of the Titans destroying part of the crystal landscape. Um, All the Titans that had drilling power were like drilling into the crystal and destroying it. And we don't know. I don't know why they were doing that. I think Defiant specifically says I couldn't even begin to imagine why they're doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's probably part of the ongoing mystery. Like, is that part of the destruction of of, the abrupt end of the cycle? I I don't I don't know. I don't know. I can't guess. Yeah. No idea. We'll find out. So you're just like defiant, basically. I, I, yep, we are defiant. We're we're all defiant today. We are defiant. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll see. We'll yeah. see. Um, trust. Let's just extend let's, some trust because I can't wait trust. to see. Can't wait to see where this goes because we are. I think we're here, Matt. I mean, the interesting thing is this is a dot A interlude, which normally happens when they are mid. Uh, arc like not like when it's at the end when the interludes at the end of the arc it usually goes like xyz if there are multiple ones um but when they're interspersed throughout the arc it usually goes abc um so i would assume we're going to get some more before the end um i think it's pretty safe to say i don't i don't know if like it'll be in a row or the, it'll be interspersed we'll see but 
Yeah, I think you're right. That's a good analysis. I, I suspect we will get, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we got a sequence of interludes as we kind of move on into the dream part of the story is my guess. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. That's it for this week. The discussion question from last week was, what is it that makes us want to give jerk characters the benefit of the doubt? Of course, we were mainly talking about Chris, but there are plenty of examples of that in this story and in other stories. And also, it was kind of a, an abstract question. It wasn't talk about a specific character. It was in general. What, yeah. what do you think it is? So Sarah Penguin yeah. says, personally, it's, uh, it's the characters who are being jerks because they've been hurt or are afraid to let people in. The ones that would probably break down crying if you gave them a hug and told them everything will be all right. When Jack got time looped, it was a big fuck you moment. And I was glad it happened to him. But Bonesaw is clearly an abused child putting up an act for her abuser. And you just want to let her know it's okay to stop because she's safe now. And we should hate Chris for helping Amy sexually assault Victoria and for all the hateful things he has said to break through. Um, but it's hard to hate him, unlike Jack. For all his... Uh, for all his... Um, bolst- bolstering bolstering chris is clearly afraid to let people in and he is really nothing more than a scared child who's too afraid to ask for help there are there are those who earn the benefit of the doubt i hated arms master but when you take away the selfish wanting credit and career oriented parts leaving the less jerky defiant who i love it's a great answer yeah especially the arms master part yeah i agree i I think that that really yeah that's that's (laughs) great i love it yeah love it love it uh, Heaven's Chocolate says, I think it's because a lot of the times those jerk characters have a point in their assholishness. Uh, a lot of those jerk characters tend to be the villains. We all know how. Uh, and we all know how these villains tend to be beloved despite how horrible they are. There's a certain charisma in them to a degree with the protagonist um, and bring their points across so that as merit to whatever the argument or point may exist in the story, they can either bring a solution to the problem that is so dis- deplorable and horrible that they may bring up a point that we can actually see the reasoning behind. It's why the cowardly jerk that has nothing to bring to the table can be so easily hated and disregarded. And they use uh, Iron Man from the MCU as like the heroic version of a jerk character. He's arrogant, obnoxious, and his sarcasm can get you to roll your eyes, but he's makes a lot of good points sometimes. True. Yeah. Yeah. Usually that's the role of his character. Like it. I I like the idea that like, especially in storytelling, when a character in a story is an asshole, like it's usually not just because the author was like, I'll make this guy an asshole. There's usually a narrative point to it. Um, and I think what that reminds us of in re- the real world is that there's a reason why people behave certain ways, all people. And it, it might not be so clean and neat as like a, a narrative device in a story, but everyone does have their own personal story and there's a reason they're behaving that way. And it maybe reminds you of that. That's what I think the thing that this story has done to me the most is look at how I interact with people I don't like um, and, and force me to reckon with how I, I sometimes interact with those people. Um, the people that are being jerks and treating me shittily. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think it's really been illuminating in that regard. Yeah. Well, if stories are empathy machines and this is a story that's particularly getting us to think about a lot of bad people. Like we, we talked before we had whole discussion questions about how many of these point of view characters and and interlude characters are just jerks and and really bad people. Um, It helps to get in the heads of bad people and be like, okay, why are you being this way? And then realize like, oh, you're, you got a lot in common with me actually. And this is understandable. And and it it generates that ability to have empathy for those people. I still feel bad about the shit I said about that asshole shortcut. I still feel bad about it. And he was a jerk. Yeah. 
if you hadn't said all that stuff, Wild Bill would have let him live. I know. That's I lose sleep over mm-hmm. that. Yep. Um, Scandia, uh, Scandiaca Blessing says, because bad boys are cool. Mm-hmm. For real, though, I think that in many cases, the black and white nature of a lot of media trains us to see sympathetic traits as a character in a character or person as signs of a hidden good. And what is a hidden good worth if it isn't brought to light? Redemption arcs are a very common thing in media because they are compelling. The problem comes in real life when we see people with sympathetic traits, vulnerability, familiarity, and the like in, in real life abusers because all of the media they consume tells them that those traits are a sign that there's a good person there in the end. They will continue to let that person hurt them because they trust their true selves over their actions. I've never really liked Chris, bad person, great character, because his actions show a consistent pattern of being a shitheel, even though he has many sympathetic traits. Um, well, that's just a direct attack to what I just said. Yeah. Um, I do think it's... Um, uh, there are some actually really bad people in the world. Like, like yeah, that, I yeah. mean, it, oh, yeah. I, I, I don't think this is a contradiction to what we just said. There are people who are having a rough time and, and, you, and they deserve empathy. And then there are people who are... Um, awful yeah yes. <laughs> and it can be it can actually be hard to distinguish these two so that that's just a thing to be aware of i guess and yeah i i, yeah. I do think that that a lot of people do like tr- oh he's a good person under all this stuff i think that does happen and i do and i do i think we have to acknowledge uh media and narratives ability to aid those assumptions in people for sure yeah, I mean, I think that we've we've been in Chris's head. We understand that he's this kid. We, he's this he's this kid who's been tortured. Sure. That that is what that is what allows us to to say he he how how would he be if he were given you know love and and mm-hmm. and and care and safety? Um, we've ne- because clearly he is terrified. We know that for a fact. We know that he's mm-hmm. terrified. Mm-hmm. So that in his particular case, I think hedges against the idea that like oh he's just a psychopath he's just a bad person yeah well and i think one of the cool things that stories do is is give you a relatively safe environment to you know train yourself on this kind of empathy Mm -hmm. like like in real life there's like there are consequences of extending kindness to people that don't deserve it because you let them off you get you allow them to get away with terrible behavior that they shouldn't get away with in a book there's really no risk of that like it's just a character in a book. Yeah. Um, and so like, like it's, it's a sandbox to explore these feelings relatively safely. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I, I, I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next we have months for college and says, because I'm something of an idiot asshole myself, <laughs> I don't like conventionally nice and likable characters getting all the breaks, especially when the reason why said character is a dick are often things far beyond their control. And in many examples set up, set up long before they were born. But really, fuck Chris, though. <laughs> He's just a punk, and I'd shove his head in the toilet. <laughs> okay, fair would enough. You, would you shove your own head in a toilet months for college? Would you? Would you? Have you? You're probably um, going to say yes. But. Yeah, probably. Well, the average gamer, 29,000. For me, it'd be the relatability of the character. Now, obviously, my own actions aren't as drastic as those in Parahumans, but I personally love the asshole characters like Sylvester, Tattletale, even Chris. Even when his sights are aimed against our protagonists and characters I also love, I can't help but like him. I enjoy teasing and mocking my friends relentlessly, pushing buttons, and when I read stories and find that kind of person in a story, I get a twisted sense of enjoyment reading their interactions with other characters. 
The reason I give the jerk the benefit of the doubt is because of that relatability, that no matter what happens, I'll stick by my friends wholeheartedly, even if I enjoy messing with them. But <laughs> then I put myself in a place of the character, and my mind subconsciously becomes, come on, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, so like, it's fine, everything's fine. <laughs> I get that. I, I definitely get that. I think that that kind of pairs with months for college that like we see relatability because we are often flawed individuals um, that kind of can be jerks to people sometimes. And so when we see a jerk character is like, that's me. I, and and I, I see myself. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing about Chris is like, you know, talk about teasing your friends relentlessly. The thing about Chris is not that like teasing your friends is wrong, but that Chris just never knew when to stop. Yeah. Like he just didn't, there's no stopping point. He always, always would take it too far. Yeah. Yeah. I think Jessica said that exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next we have Rid Tom who says, have to admit, I'm probably not equipped for this one. I've been vocal about my dislike of Chris and Damsel and Je Death Chester and Prancer, etc. And very few jerk characters and parahumans have me going, but I want to see more of them willingly, except one tattletale and Rid Tom actually gives like a very very long uh wonderful post about tattletale and victoria and how they relate to each other um i, I like this this part at the very beginning though i've been very vocal about how much of an absolute bitch tattletale has been in ward calling victoria a monster nearly setting an apartment complex on file to cut fire to cover up her team's fuck up saying victoria deserved to be raped and such it's vile it's toxic it's sad because, yeah, Tattletail has always been a smarmy asshole, but everyone around her is noticing and mentioning that Tattletail is going too far in various degrees. And Ridtom goes on from there that, like, the reason why it seems to Ridtom that Tattletail is a character that that they extend the benefit of the doubt is it's so transparently obvious that this is just that, that even when she is a jerk, even when she is toxic and terrible, that it is coming from a place of deep, deep insecurity. Um, and I mean, it's similar to why you and I like Chris so much is because we can easily see that in Chris. Mm -hmm. um, and then Tom can easily see that in Tattletale and and loves the way that Victoria and Tattletale kind of play off each other in that way. Yeah, I think this is uh, an example of something that we've talked about a lot where the characters who are who are pretty bad, but not monsters like Jack, you can relate to them because we mm -hmm. all have things that, that we can relate to in those people, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Extas Nouveau says... Do we? <laughs> I am more of a follower of the Phil Jerk's Nostrils with Bees school of thought. In Worm, the only jerk characters that we needed were um, Alec and Aisha, and those never outright opposed Taylor so much as Chris did with Victoria. Taylor was the one that switched teams and needed the benefit of the doubt from the, from the undersider's perspective, but we were in her head and did not see this. Um, and then they give some spoilers for The Wandering In, which I'm not going to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, that's an interesting angle on it. Basically, like, I don't give any bad characters the benefit of the doubt. Um, sounds like gave it to Taylor, though. Ooh, got her. Yeah, I mean, you you certainly didn't give Taylor the benefit of the doubt. In fact, I would say that you famously didn't give Taylor the benefit of the doubt. So Wait, are you talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> I mean... You were, you, there's a meme about it, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the meme exists because it's so ridiculous. I okay, love I'm, Taylor. I'm, I'm just... I'm just giving you a hard time, Scott, which is what, which is what I do as yep. a jerk character. Well, I'm not going to give you the benefit of the doubt, Matt. Oh, shit. Oh, God. Oh, no. 
All right. Up next, we have Sanity Planet, who says redemption stories are compelling because they show the characters have layers and depth with their enjoyable things to discover. They also say jerk characters are interesting and fun because they often act out on their own baser impulses. And that is an element of this that I I do want to I think is a really, really good thing to discuss here, because, again, books are relatively safe spaces where you can see people act like assholes and there's relatively no real world consequences to that. Right. And sometimes it's fun to just see people say their speak their mind in a way that's completely against like social norms and conventions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's just fun. Yeah. yeah no one's fun to listen to that. No one's being hurt. Exactly. Yeah. So cool. uh, they give uh, some other examples, but uh, those are the ones I really want to talk okay, about. Cool. EXE JPEG uh, windows media viewer says <laughs> it's nice to envision people rising above their negative inclinations, even when they display no desire to do so. Yeah. I like that. It's kind of like the redemption arc idea that like we want to see these people get better when they're bad and therefore we want to extend them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Particularly the Chris like kind where part of the reason we want to see it is that he has so consistently failed to do so. Sure, 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 sure. All right. Next up, we have Penitent Edgelord, who said, depends on the jerk, to be honest, but it mostly comes down to how relatable they are. If their jerkishness comes from a relatable place or if they're relatable in some other way, I usually want to see how, if at all, they move past it. I definitely found myself making excuses for jerk and worse characters just because they were relatable on some level. I gave Tristan way too much slack during Ward's Capricorn interludes, for instance. Not me. I definitely didn't do that. And sometimes the jerk's characters are just fun. If a character is enjoyable to watch read, then sometimes I just naturally start Start rooting for them even if they're an asshole director pigot and arms master back in worm for example also even if they aren't an especially likable jerk characters tend to provoke in- jerk aren't especially likable jerk characters tend to provoke interesting react ch- character interactions taylor's response to director tag comes to mind yes um that's great i love that answer um yeah. except for the tristan part because i think you were absolutely fair enough to tristan because he's just a sad boy yeah he's a sad, sad boy poor tristan yeah he was he really not, the victim. Okay. I'm yeah, gonna... he never <laughs> why, why did you say that? <laughs> Fuck, man. Uh, okay. Matt was joking, everyone. Was, yeah, please, please don't get mad at don't us. Don't at me. I've already muted you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, Steed says, when it comes to jerk characters, there are some that you love to hate, Joffrey Baratheon, and others that you actually like in spite of their jerkiness. I think the most common way we come to really like jerk characters is through three tropes. Uh, number one, you're you're not wrong you're just an asshole and mm-hmm. jerk mm-hmm. with a heart of gold and sympathetic jerk many yeah, likable jerks use one or more of these to endear themselves to the audience it's it's so f- hilarious that i just can envision every single one of those just immediately yeah, yeah absolutely yeah uh, a classic likable jerk that fits these is the troubled detective like sherlock we forgive him being a jerk when he's solving cases and saving lives we forgive him being a jerk when the facade cracks and we see him care about people we forgive him being a jerk when we learn about his tragic backstory now once we've now once we're endeared to the character it's pretty easy to want them to do better and give them the benefit of the doubt when it comes to parahumans specifically chris he shows off all these qualities he frequently says the right thing but in a mean way he secretly really does care about breakthrough he has a sad backstory to generate sympathy. It just makes you want to see Robin Williams come in and tell him it isn't his fault. It's not your it's fault, not, Chris. It's not your fault, Chris. I know, it's, I know. It's not your it's fault, not your Chris. Fault. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. It's a, it's a good Will Hunting. It's, it's a, a good movie. Yeah, for those of you who were just confused. It's a good movie. <laughs> it is. It's a really great movie. It's a good scene. All right, Matt, that's it. Yeah, yep, next week's discussion question. 
Is a heroic sacrifice good or bad and why? Yeah, we've, we've talked about it a lot on this episode and now we're punting the question to you guys. What do you think? Maybe there's a gray area. I don't know. Yeah. Just discuss. I had fun discuss. talking about this today. I feel I feel enlightened now. But yeah, give us your thoughts. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, Scott, walk us through March's Badness this week. All right. So first up, we have to talk about the Elite Eight, Matt. Let's see the results of the Elite Eight. So first up, we have Sleeping with the Fishes. That was our matchup between Rain and Byron. Uh-huh. Matt? And it looks like Rain... How do you feel about this? <laughs> Are we announcing? Wait, hold on. What? Yeah, announce it. Announce it. Okay, yeah, it looks like Rain took that match. Yeah, he did. Um, uh, handedly, 82% yeah. to 18%. Poor Byron. Yeah. A, a rough mean, showing. R- Byron, you know, he's he's he did okay. He did okay, but... Uh, Ultimately, he's only half of a member of Breakthrough. So, um, you know, we have to give it to Rain. Yeah. So comments on this one. One from uh, Sanity was, I'm on team fuck Byron, which. (laughs) Oh, God. I didn't know that was a team. There's a team fuck Byron. (laughs) I know. Like, I I love Tristan, but I didn't know that was the team. (laughs) Wow. Learning so much. Uh, Sarah Penguin says, Rain avenge Chicken Little. He thinks you're cool. Uh, So. He did. So Rain moves on to the final four. Everyone thinks Rain Rain. is cool. Yeah. Next matchup was... Sorry, I'm I'm having to navigate this thing. That's okay. I got it right here. Okay. Let me announce it. Um, Um, uh, It was our our bet. Our winner of the bet bracket was um, Lisa Tattletail versus Kenzie Lookout. And uh, Matt... Another kind of surprising one yeah, for I'm me. Like, oh my God, Tattletale has defeated Kinsey. Yeah, sixty-one to thirty-nine percent win for Tattletale. Yeah, the girl with all the eyes on her shard. Wait, does she have eyes? No, I don't remember. Shit, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Great, Matt. Lisa uh, won. We have Elliot here who says, before starting Ward, I would have said Lisa was my favorite character in fiction. Unfortunately, Kenzie came along and drop kicked her off the pedestal. Wow. Hopefully she repeats that maneuver in a wider vote here. Sorry, Elliot. She did not. Um, and then we have Ponich Hobo who says, if I voted for Lisa, I don't think Kenzie could have handled the abandonment. abandonment. Well, uh-huh. if only if only the, uh, the, com- the, the voting game were as strong as the commenting game. Yeah, sad. All right. I figured out how to use the website now, Scott, so I can announce the next ones. So Um, go for it. The next ones were uh, Victoria Dallin versus Dragon and Defiant. And coming in to, um, I would call this surprisingly close, actually. Uh, Victoria Dallin takes it with 72%. Yeah, I was, I, I wonder if this vote would have been a little different if it happened after saturday's chapter where dragon and defiant got a pretty great moment true true it was just slightly too late actually i mean people were people still able to vote after that point uh technically yes but most of them had voted already and you can't like undo your vote ah i see i see okay fair enough Um, but i i victoria was always going to win that one i think but uh yeah 27 isn't bad for dragon and defiant yeah a lot of love a lot of love for them yeah, we only got one comment on this one from Rob, who says, much like Teacher, Scott has taken some of Dragon's agency by not giving her her own slot. Also, much like Teacher, I am killing her a little bit by voting for Victoria. 
I would like to point out that if I did not combine Dragon and Defiant, Dragon would not have been in the poll at all. Uh-huh. So you should feel thankful that I did that. <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> um, all right. And then the final matchup was Ashley, Swansong Ashley versus Aisha Imp. What a fiendish, fiendish matchup, Scott. And it was the closest of our uh, Elite Eight matchups of the week. That's right. Super, super close. Swansong takes it with 55%. So close. So close. Uh, People really love Imp. Yeah. Yeah. We have Vilheim in the comments who says, this looks like looks like this is Ashley's toughest matchup yet, which isn't saying much compared to the previously annihilated competition. Imp will soon follow the previous fools who dare challenge Swansong. Long live the queen. (laughs) That's so good. And Sarah Penguin says, after ruining her apartment, it's time for Swan Song's revenge. And she gets it. Oh, she gets it. I like that. I like that a lot. So that is it. Our final four are uh, Victoria, Tattletale, Rain, and Ashley. And once again, I have to compliment Scott's uh, uh, bracket naming scheme. Uh, mixed emotions for Rain versus Victoria. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, what's funny is I thought this was going to be hard and I've already made up my mind. What is your mind? I mean, Victoria is a fucking great character. She's going to be with me for the rest of my life. Rain is also a great character, but I love Victoria. She's, she's awesome. This is really hard for me. Um, I think I'm going to vote for Victoria. I, I, I agree with you on that. And it's just because like, man, I love her. So like rain is great. I love rain. I think rain if rain won this vote, I'd be thrilled and happy about it. And seeing rain go to the championship would be great. But Victoria is, is Victoria. <laughs> and I, I, I just feel weird not voting for her in this regard. So yeah, I, I agree. I, I did it. I did it. All right. Okay. Next up, our last matchup of the week. It's so much easier when there's only a couple Matt. It's true. It's so much easier. Uh, we have shipmates. <laughs> this is Lisa versus Ashley. Yeah. Um I would like to to give Matt credit for shipmates because I basically sent him a message that was like I need a name for a matchup that that explains how both of these characters want to bang their protagonist. Um and Matt came up with shipmates and that's perfect. Yeah, and that's so. the the literally only one of these bracket names I've come up with. So thank you for the credit. Every other one was got. Anyway, um I've already made up my mind on this one too because while while Lisa is a fantastic character and I love her. I I think that I'm voting for Ashley purely on the basis of the eclipse arc. And if, if, if she needed any extra ammunition, then it would be all of her actions in the story. Fuck. That's a good way to frame it. I was struggling on this one because I basically, I want to see a, a, a war award only character win this thing. Mm-hmm. I want to see that happen. And Victoria counts as a ward only character. I know she's in war. Blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and, and Lisa did like she was in the championship last week. So I, I want to vote for Swan Song. But this recent chapter really made me remind myself why I love Lisa so much. Mm-hmm. So this ended up being way harder after reading this week's stuff and thinking about it for a while. But I think I have to give it up for Swan Song. I think the Eclipse arc is wonderful. Some of the best moments in the story. I love her journey. Um, and I think we're going to see some more of her before the story is over. I think in the dream world, I'm thinking Matt. So yeah, I'm going to vote for her. 
if yeah, there's a chance. All right. It. All right. Glad we agreed on this most important of votes. Yeah. Yeah. So next week we'll be back to talk about the results of those two matchups and give our picks for the championship. This is, where, this is it. Yeah. And that's all we've got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. That's where I do live reads each and every week, although I don't know there's going to be too many more of those, Matt. True, <laughs> like true. Like two, maybe? Three? Maybe. Three live reads? Maybe. maybe, maybe um, I mean, I don't know. I, I think we'll probably have an epilogue, so I would say sure, more than three, sure. but yeah, um, we'll see. Yeah, you can also follow my personal Twitter at ScottDaily85 and Matt's is at MoreDinamail. And that's where you can track our slow descent into insanity after being locked up in our houses for forever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That I recommend it. It's great. Um, if you're not already subscribed to the We've Got Ward podcast feed, we recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this and all of our other podcasts we do over at doofmedia.com. That's where you can find Pilot Season. Have we talked about Pilot Season? I feel like we did. I don't um, remember. I think we talked about it at the start of the last episode. But um, you can hit it, hit it up again. The, the, the Media MD guys, the Deep Impact guys, Elliot and Ruben, are doing a pilot season where they basically are going to do the first episode of a whole bunch of different shows to see what people like the most. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to make a real show out of whichever one of those does the best. Yeah, and last week they did their first episode, which was on uh, Twig. And um, unsurprisingly, the people that listened to these shows liked that one a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, Bl- blown away by that. Yeah, but they still have many more shows to try out. So it's going to be over the next uh, the next few months. I think they're doing like eight or nine different shows, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's very exciting. Uh, I can't wait to see not everything that they're doing. I've read like I couldn't really listen to the twig one because I haven't read that. Um, But some of the stuff like they're doing a show on the expanse, I think, which we read the first book in that um, and really enjoyed it. So can't wait to hear that one. That'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. And if you like any of these shows, any of the Doof shows, and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash doofmedia. Supporting us on Patreon at the $5 per month level. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm changing the script as Matt is talking. I, I, the script is being deleted out from under me as I am talking. <laughs> well, we're, uh, we're, we're, gets we're you a bonus. To, we were supposed to change what level we talk about each week to like show you guys what all our different levels are but i keep forgetting to change that part of the script so i just tried to do it right now and it was a bad call guys it it was uh you know i admire the sentiment behind it um and the funny thing is i don't actually remember what the five dollar tier is the five dollar tier is our doof and chill session where every month we hang out for a couple hours with the people at that level and above just in a live stream just hang out do different things uh the reason why I'm bringing it up is because April's Doof and Chill, which the dates of this haven't been announced yet, but what we're doing, it's really fun. Matt and I are going to do a Portal 2 uh, live streamed race against Elliot and Ruben. So basically we're going to play for two hours and see who gets further uh, in the co-op version of Portal 2. Yeah, co-op Portal 2. I've played Portal 1. I've never played Portal 2 at all. Um, so you're going to hear a lot of Scott yelling at me to do things. Yeah. That's going to be fun. I've played both of them, but I've never played the co-op mode. So I don't know the solution to any of those puzzles. I think Elliot and Ruben are the same, um, that they've never played 
I don't know if they played any of them, but they definitely haven't played the co-op version. So it's going to be fun. Um, we're going to try to stream it at the same time. It's difficult with this, these, these wacky time zones, but also <laughs> nobody leaves their house anymore. <laughs> so it makes it easier. True, true. <laughs> so that's what we're doing. Uh, that's at the, at the doof and chill level. That's the $5 a month level. Um, yeah, that's sorry. Sorry for throwing you a curveball there, Matt. That's my fault. It keeps it lively. <laughs> um, and as always, make sure you head on over to Wildbo's Patreon at patreon.com slash Wildbo and donate to him as well. This is his world. We are just playing in it. Um, yeah. And of course, if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and leaving us a rating and a review. There's still time for more of those. Do do it, please. Please share the podcast. Retweet us. All the things. Yeah, press press the uh, the bell icon on. Yeah, hit that bell. It's gonna be funny in like thirty years when all these services are different or, or no longer exist, and when people say like hit that bell, there's like there's no bell. What bell? What anyway, bell? that's all we have for you this week. Next week, uh, I mean, gotta be getting close to the end, right? I mean, no. Oh. Well, it's anyway, gonna be, it's going to be a 20 chapter arc, probably. And I'm totally cool with that. Let's do it. Yay. 40 chapters. No, that's too. Oh. Okay.